and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Voice of Neuro World Discussion with Agent Smith. 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 It is December the 20th, Sunday, 6.34 p.m. Pacific time. And I'm joined by none other than Agent Smith himself. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing okay. Stand warm? Stand well-fed and hydrated? All of the above. Good. Happy to hear it. We're trying to round out this heck of a year. <laughs> the year of the plague. Hopefully next year is going to bring some positives. It looks like the tide is turning. We have vaccines and stuff on the way. I think they've been FDA approved. And the question is the logistics of getting it out there and the money of paying for all of it. Mm. Yeah, I didn't uh, realize that it happened until you mentioned it just a few minutes ago. I think the stimulus uh, bill? Yeah, I was reading the article about it after you mentioned it. So apparently mm -hmm. the article is only an hour old, so this is pretty new. Yeah, I actually just flipped over because I was anticipating your question of, was there anything that caught your eye? And I was like, shit, I didn't study for Agent <laughs> Smith this week. So I just opened Reddit, flipped to the news tab, and then I, I kind of scrolled through the dumb articles of like just some sensationalist crap and then something that actually was a, a policy that could affect people and that was the one that jumped out hmm. yeah i've only i haven't read much about it uh just what was in the article here that i skimmed through uh i guess the highlights are stuff that's probably already in chat uh six hundred dollars instead of uh twelve hundred dollars like it was in the last stimulus in terms of payments to people and uh, what was it? They were going to do an unemployment payment boost of about $300 per week. And there was also $300 billion in support for businesses, money for vaccine distribution, schools, and renters facing eviction. Uh, I don't think the article mentioned anything about uh, continuing the moratorium on eviction. So that may be more of a state-by-state -state thing. Uh, but it may just be that there is something in the bill and they haven't reported it yet, or I'm not aware of it yet. Uh, the only other thing that kind of jumped out on me, jumped out at me, rather, was that there's not going to be substantive aid to states or localities. Uh, that was one of the things the Democratic Party was really asking for, and one of the things the talks were hung up on for so long. Uh, so it would seem that uh, Republicans kind of more got their way on that if that is an accurate representation. Again, uh, article is only an hour old. And I just just skimmed it, so I'm, I'm probably missing some of the details there, but it looks like uh, the Republicans kind of got their preference. I have a correction in the chat that the vaccines have been approved for emergency use, but not fully approved yet. A correction? Oh, just on something that I said earlier, Oh, the uh, coronavirus vaccine has been FDA approved for emergency use, but not for full use. Oh, okay. Or fully approved. Yeah, There's still a little bit of progress to be made, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think the feds are going to get in the way. I think they're doing everything they can to just make it as fast as possible, so... Uh, even if it's even if they're getting the fast track treatment, I don't anticipate it being a legal problem later. I don't think the Biden administration is going to reverse course on that and you know suddenly slow down the process. 
So most likely that's just going to continue on as is. And I did actually just do some random vice guide documentary binging. Oh, cool. Day. Uh, I was just kind of in the mood for that, I guess. I watched one on Belarus, mm-hmm. which was pretty interesting. It followed a local journalist around, <laughs> being a journalist there. It's yeah. quite the drip. Yeah, that's a little dicey. They were getting followed a whole bunch. It kind of reminded me of whenever reporters will go to North Korea and there's either constant direct escorts of people telling them where they can and can't go or it's um, just them being stalked and not quite understanding what they want from them but making sure they don't say or do anything they're not supposed to don't go to these areas stuff like that yeah but it seems like there's a, a regular amount of activity there of people trying to fight for more of their personal liberty and stuff like that yeah they're trying a lot to of workarounds for the restrictions that are placed on them i think there's like a belarus i don't know if it's a independence day but some national holiday where they protest every year now mm-hmm. yeah i don't know cool. what it is off the top of my head but I think I remember hearing about that. Yeah, at this point, it's still very much an uphill battle for them. Mm-hmm. You know, the government still kind of has the uh, upper hand just by dint of having an authoritarian political system. It's not like, um, you know, it's kind of not like Iran, say, or even Egypt, where it's an authoritarian political system, but they have the trappings of a democratic political system there. And they just kind of need to reform it and take it seriously if they want to have something resembling a true liberal democracy. You know, in a place like Belarus, it's the institutions themselves are very explicitly designed to be authoritarian. So it's not really as simple as just uh, tweaking things. You know, they do have elections and whatnot, but you would need to reform a lot more than just the electoral system uh, if you wanted to implement democratic changes there you know even in uh, parts of the soviet union that broke away and did try to take uh, a democratic transition seriously after 1991 it's been a pretty tough process i think uh the closest you could come to real success stories there is uh, the baltic states you know estonia latvia lithuania they've done relatively well from what i've read and from what I remember. But in places like, uh, you know, Ukraine or Moldova or the Caucasus republics, it's been much more iffy, suffice to say. You know, lots of corruption, oligarchs, broken political institutions, dysfunctional economies. Uh, it's not exactly ideal circumstances with which to build a liberal political culture which is what you really need if you want to have, you know, democratic governance. You know, you can change the system to have uh, democratic institutions, but if there's not that underlying democratic liberal political culture, then it almost doesn't matter. You know, people will just abuse it wherever they can. And that's sort of the fight that they've been having. But Belarus, you know, hasn't even started really on that path yet. So they've... Uh, even if they were to succeed, it would be very difficult, but it's still not really clear to me that they're going to. 
the government is, I mean, we've talked about it before, but the government is playing both sides of the geopolitical fence, as it were. They're trying not to uh, crack down too hard so that they can stay in the good graces of the European Union, but uh, they're also uh, hewing towards Russia, maintaining relations there by trying to maintain power. I did feel a lot of overlap with North Korea in the sense that as access to the internet improves, people are getting more information, which allows them to organize better mm -hmm. and just have a, a more clear perspective of what's going on beyond just the propaganda that gets served. Yeah. Yeah. How old was the documentary? I believe it was about a year or two old. So I think it's relatively recent, maybe not super recent. Gotcha. Yeah, I hadn't heard any updates from there in a while, so I don't know if there's anything new happening. There is something, another country that I actually have heard very little about, and you'd probably be excited to even have mentioned. Eritrea. Ah, yeah. Country in Africa that. bordering on Ethiopia. Yep. Just right. another documentary on the country. It's basically described as the North Korea of Africa. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They've got a dictator. They've got only state-sponsored news. Uh, a lot of people are fleeing the country fairly regularly. I think there's some armed conflict on the border, but maybe not anything huge scale. Yeah, not really anymore. Not like there was. Yeah, Eritrea is interesting. It actually used to be a part of Ethiopia and had been for a long time. And uh, they were one of the places where rebels took up arms against the Ethiopian government back in the 80s. Uh, that was back when Ethiopia had a communist government called the Derg, and uh, they were very unpopular. So there was a revolution, maybe not all over the place, but uh, pretty widespread in Ethiopia throughout the 1980s. And uh, you know, one of the things that happened after the Ethiopian government collapsed, uh, I want to say in the early 90s or late 80s, somewhere around there, one of the things that happened after that is that Eritrea and its revolutionary group uh, declared independence. You know, they just broke away outright. And uh, the Ethiopian government didn't really like that. That is to say, the new Ethiopian government, uh, also led by rebels. Uh, and so there was a brief struggle uh, between them to try to maintain the integrity of Ethiopia that the Eritreans were able to win. And I think later on, there was also a border war over a town uh, that was of no significant consequence. You know, the joke was it was uh, two bald men fighting over a comb, <laughs> you know, just uh, fighting for the sake of fighting, basically just principle rather than any substantive strategic objective. So that lasted for, I think, a year or two before that war ended at a stalemate. And since then, they've mostly been in uh, a frozen conflict. You know, it was, they'd never really uh, achieved peace, but they weren't fighting anymore. So it was just sort of this uneasy status quo. And it was pretty much because of that status quo, because it was so... Uh, unpredictable and because Ethiopia was so much more powerful than Eritrea that the Eritrean government felt that it was justified in setting up a very strict authoritarian one-party state. You know, maybe they would have done it anyway. I'm not super familiar with the politics of the party in power there, but 
Uh, I remember that one of the nominal justifications for being so strict is that they had to uh, organize Eritrea very well and concentrate the country's resources under one party so that if there was a existential conflict with Ethiopia, then Eritrea would be as prepared as possible. Uh, because it was so much smaller, they just felt that uh, the only way they could win is if they had something resembling a Spartan state, almost. And, uh, you know, again, maybe that was just authoritarianism. Uh, maybe that was just the authoritarian party looking for excuses, but nominally that was the justification. And one of the things they did as part of that regime in order to uh, maintain control is conscription. They would require people to uh, join the military and fight. Well, not fight really, but be members of the military for uh, some specified amount of time. And the thing that drove people uh, to leave Eritrea in droves, and one of the major reasons there's so many emigrants uh, coming out of Eritrea in the past, what, 10 years especially, is because of the length of the conscription period. You know, the, the period of service required is something like 20 years, you know, something ridiculously long like that. And while you're in the military there, it's not even like you're really a soldier. Most of what you do is actually uh, work. You know, they'll put you to work on civil service projects, you know, engineering projects, what have you, you know, helping build roads, dig ditches, that kind of thing. So you're not quite slave labor since they do technically pay you, but because you are required to serve, uh, regardless of whether or not you want to, and because the period of service is so long, uh, being a conscript in the Eritrean military has been compared to slavery. So that's the kind of authoritarian government we're talking about. Now, it's things have gotten a little better in the past couple years. Uh, Prime Minister Abe Abi over in Ethiopia. Uh, one of the things he wanted to do is to try to achieve a, a full peace agreement with Eritrea so that they could normalize relations. You know, one, that was partly important just for the sake of it, you know, just so that they could normalize economic relations. But that was also important because historically Eritrea was Ethiopia's connection to the sea. Ethiopia actually became a landlocked nation because Eritrea became independent and separated. They took Ethiopia's entire coastline with them. So by normalizing relations, that improves access to the sea for Ethiopia uh, and makes them a little less reliant on uh, Djibouti, Chad's favorite country, as it were. Uh, before, you know, after Eritrea left, uh, Djibouti was the principal access, form, access to the sea for Ethiopia. And the Ethiopian government had been sponsoring development of infrastructure in order to improve connectivity uh, between Djibouti and, and Ethiopian infrastructure so that uh, importation was a little cheaper. But if relations with Eritrea are normalized, then that's not as necessary. You know, even if they still, it's probably a good idea to improve connectivity with Djibouti just in case, just for leverage. But opening up Eritrean ports to Ethiopians will also uh, significantly lower the costs of importing goods and services. And that only has positive effects on the economy. So that was another reason uh, for Abi to try to normalize relations there. And then, of course, it was just uh, not good for security uh, or for business, for that matter, to be constantly on edge on the border, not knowing when the next conflict might break out over there. So for all of those reasons, Abi pushed for a peace agreement with 
a peace agreement with Eritrea, and he actually got it. And the result was that he and the leader of Eritrea, I don't remember his name, got the uh, Nobel Peace Prize. I think this was in 2018 or so. You know, Chad can correct me if I'm wrong. You know, the usual disclaimer applies. I'm not an expert in everything I talk about on here. So, you know, if, I, uh, if I'm wrong, if I, if I ever say anything wrong, stupid, or biased, please correct me. And Chad, I don't read Chad while we do this, but I will read it later. So uh, participation is encouraged in that vein. But yeah, that's since then, since that peace agreement, Eritrea has been pretty quiet. I haven't heard as much from them. I don't know that they've, you know, become any less authoritarian, as it were. Uh, but I haven't heard as much about tensions on the border with Ethiopia. So that does seem to be a settled matter. And in fact, the latest of what I've been reading uh, in terms of Eritrea has been that they have been cooperating with the Ethiopian government vis-a-vis their invasion of the uh, province of Tigray in the north of Ethiopia. You know, some interesting trivia here and uh, relevant trivia to current events. Uh, Tigray province was the home of the rebel group that controlled the government of Ethiopia after the collapse of the communist government, right up until a couple years ago. You know, they kind of ruled Ethiopia in conjunction with a number of other rebel groups from different provinces. Uh, but the Tigray were top of the heap. You know, they were pretty much the leaders. Uh, and so it was pretty much them who took the lead on the conf- the border conflict with Eritrea because the province of Tigray is actually the Ethiopian province uh, that borders Eritrea. So that was very much uh, a very of particular interest to the Tigray people and the province of Tigray that they get that uh, disputed territory along the border. But after they were gone, uh, the new leadership under Prime Minister Abe was largely uh, ethnic Oromo, and they were more from Oromo province, which is in the center of the country. And they're not at, they weren't as invested in that territorial dispute, you know, for obvious reasons. So that was one of the reasons they were able to make that happen. Uh, it's also one of the reasons that the Tigray leadership, since ousted from power, uh, has tried to challenge the government, or at least that's one of their rationalizations for challenging the Abe government. They say that uh, the peace deal with Eritrea was unprincipled, quote unquote, and that the government should not have given up the disputed territory so easily. Uh, I don't know how seriously the Tigray leadership actually takes the disputed territory. It might just be a tool they're using to try to uh, rally the Tigray populace in their little conflict with the Ethiopian government that they're having right now. Uh, But regardless... That is sort of the context there uh, for the Tigrays. Oh, and uh, bring that full circle. Uh, the Ethiopian government invaded the Tigray province when they attacked a government base there. You know, we talked about that, I think, a week or two ago, what the context there was. Uh, and apparently, the Eritrean government has lent some support to that operation. You know, there were early reports of artillery fire across the border from Eritrea, but they weren't confirmed. And uh, there was some suspicion that maybe the Tigrays were just making it up to make the make the Ethiopian government look bad. Uh, but since then, there's been more credible reports that uh, there's been Eritrean military activity across the border. So it would seem that uh, the peace deal between the Ethiopian government and the Eritrean government not only improved relations broadly, but has potentially led to military cooperation uh, between the two governments as regards the Tigray. 
So a sign of how much things have changed in a very short amount, short amount of time. But that's about all I can remember about Eritrea. I think the ethnic group, maybe I can remember something about the predominant ethnic group there. It's supposed to be, it's Islamic for one. It's mostly the, a Muslim region, but it's also more Arabic. It's not outright Arabic. It's like a mix between Arab ethnicity and some of the local Kushite ethnicity. Uh, but it is technically its own distinct group for that reason, as opposed to some of the central Ethiopian ethnic groups, which are more explicitly Kushite in nature. I'm not super familiar with the cultures there. That's something new I've been learning about. I'm not, in general, I'm very ignorant about Africa. So I'm uh, having to learn from scratch pretty much and, you know, have been learning off and on over the past couple of years, which is about the the only time and effort I've dedicated to it. So I don't have a whole lot to report on ethnicity and culture in Ethiopia for that reason. But from what little I remember, from what little I've read thus far, uh, Kushite in the middle of Ethiopia and more Arab Muslim cultural influence on the coasts and in the western part of Ethiopia. Well, that's a hell of a lot more than I knew off the top of my head about Eritrea. Well, I don't know that I blame you. Nobody really needs to know about Eritrea. It's very isolated. You know, they, uh, because it's so authoritarian, everybody kind of cut off relations with them. They don't really trade with a lot of countries. It's they just questions uh, from a lot of people, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're pretty isolated, which I think is why they get the uh, North Korea of Africa moniker. It's more a reflection of how isolated they are than, the, you know, the ideology or even necessarily the government. I, I think North Korea's government is probably more, has more administrative capacity than the Eritrean government. You know, they're both pretty poor, but I, I suspect the North Koreans are, have it a little more together in terms of running an authoritarian one-party state, if only because of experience. I think they also have some ties to Saudi Arabia. I seem to remember the Saudis trying to get them to do something at one point, but I don't quite remember what it was. In general, the Saudis like to throw around their money when they want to exert influence. So they may have offered up some investment or something in exchange for diplomatic support in the, uh, what is it, the Arab League? I think it is. I think Eritrea is a member of the Arab League, technically. So it may be that the Saudis were trying to get them to vote a certain way. I don't, again, I don't quite remember the details. There was something else too. I think they, no, that was Sudan. Sudan leased out a naval base to Russia. They were going to lease it out to Turkey, but that apparently fell through after the revolution. But now they're trying to lease to uh, the Russians. I had thought that the... Eritreans had leased to somebody too. That might have been the Emiratis. I think that's what it was. I think the United Arab Emirates actually leased a naval base or some damn thing on the coast of Eritrea. Yeah, the Emiratis have been kind of a rising power in the Middle East. They've been exerting more influence and been a lot more active. They tend to be a lot smarter than the Saudis. <laughs> Not to sound too insulting, but the Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Arabian foreign policy tends to be a bit of a mess. It has been for the past 10 years or so. 
the Emiratis have been much more calculating and precise in their actions and have been much more productive as a result. So having an Emirati base over in Eritrea is just another manifestation of their growing influence in the region. Uh, what else can I remember? I don't quite know what the main economic activity is. I'm sure there's lots of cut. Cut is like this narcotic that you chew. It's very popular in uh, East Africa and Southern Arabian Peninsula. Very common. It's almost kind of like chewing tobacco in the West almost. Sort of a similar cultural phenomena from what I've read about it. But beyond that, I don't know, maybe coffee? Ethiopia grows a lot of coffee, so that's that could also be a big economic driver in Eritrea, but I haven't read anything to that effect. Over in Somaliland, they do lots of beef. They'll actually uh, sell beef to Saudi Arabia, I think. That's their principal economic activity. But I don't know that Eritrea has the land for it. I think it's more volcanic. I don't think there's a whole lot of like flat territory that they can do that on. So I'm not sure. I'd have to read more about that. Random trivia about Eritrea for you, Nero. Today we learned. Yeah, that whole Red Sea region is pretty poor. It's strategic because it's sort of the outlet for the Suez Canal. You know, if you want to get to the Suez Canal or sail from it, you're pretty much, you have to go through the Red Sea. So it's a choice location. But not a lot of countries have been able to take advantage of it, really. It's not, I mean, the Middle East isn't known as like a tourist location. So there's not a lot of tourism. And uh, most of the ships that need like uh, naval supplies and stuff, they'll stop at Djibouti. Or uh, I think that is the main one. I think Djibouti is the main one. We went on vacation to Sharm el-Sheikh which oh, is yeah? part of Egypt, yeah. It's actually quite nice. They have some coral reefs. It's amazing because if you're above the water, the land is really barren and arid and dry and everything. It looks like a desert, not very pretty. Go under the water there, and it's all the bright coral and fish and stuff. With the state of our oceans, it's probably not in good shape anymore. <laughs> but when we went about, I think I would have been... 19 hmm. time that would have been 12 years ago so oh, wow interesting timing <laughs> yeah Things i think that... we went right before the muslim brotherhood took over yeah oh wow that's pretty cool mm -hmm. yeah they do have tourist resorts on the arab sea there or the red sea rather uh, but they've, I don't think any of them have really reached critical mass. I don't think any, I mean, you tell me, I mean, you've been there. So how big was like the resort? Was there a lot of traffic, a lot of people there? Yeah. It's like a whole resort area. It reminds me a little bit of Cancun where it'll be like back to back to back resort hotels all next to each other, just mm -hmm. separated by a big wall each, but it's kind of the same stuff in each one, all inclusive things. It's more of a destination for Europeans, uh, Russians, yeah. that kind of thing, than yeah. it is Americans. Huh, okay. Well, I guess I have outdated information then. I hadn't realized how it had come that far.
It was a good trip. Yeah, sounds like it. What made you guys want to go there? Well, the pyramids are a sort of thing that a lot of people would like to see. And I had never been to uh, an Arabic country, so mm. that was a cool cultural immersion kind of thing. Yeah. The food is very good. That's one of the things that by traveling, if you have an open mind in terms of cuisine, you figure out that it doesn't matter where it is in the world. People have found some way to make good food there. <laughs> yeah. Their coffee is amazing. It's really strong and sweet at the same time. Huh. American coffee is very weak and bitter compared to it. Hmm. What else? The the meats and stuff, kebabs and that kind of thing were really good. Hookah is very popular there. I think they call it shisha is the term for it. The music is fun. We were listening to whatever our driver and guide had on in the car, and that ended up being really closely synced up to our memories of the trip. So sometimes we'll just put on that CD, and you can almost see the streets of Cairo with a bunch of vans all honking their horns at each other, and there's a heckin' mule that's trying to cross the road <laughs> at the same time <laughs> on the highway. Oh, neat. Mm-hmm. So did you get a chance to see the pyramids while you were there? Well, hell yeah. They have a very overpriced for tourists uh, ride camels around the pyramids thing. Mm -hmm. So you get a really good view of them. They're rather close to downtown Cairo. It's a little bit deceptive with the way they show pictures of it. It looks like the pyramids are just out in the middle of nowhere. And there are some pyramids that are remote and just in the middle of desert, but these ones are hop, skip, and a jump from downtown. It'll maybe be like a 10 to 15 minute car and you can clearly see them from downtown. Oh, if cool. it's not a sandstorm. <laughs> there was one of those while we were there too. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, what did you think of that? That was pretty cool. I mean, like in Seattle, some days it's really foggy so you can hardly see at all. It's kind of like that, but just sand instead of clouds. Hmm. It wasn't so bad that it's like in the mummy where it's a wall and everyone's going <laughs> to die, but it was still a sandstorm. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. What did you think of Cairo? Cairo is very hustling and bustling, very tall buildings. I would guess that it's one of the more modern places, but at the same time, a lot of it was still in the old ways, like having a mixture of cars and animal drawn uh, carts and stuff on the same roads at the same time was something that you don't really see in the US. Uh, very different perception of women mm -hmm. and what their kind of role is. Mom said it was a pretty different experience. Not the most comfortable. I think usually you're supposed to like see what the guy is going to decide for the group. So if you're a lady, sometimes being outspoken and stuff, you may get scowled at. If you're in tourist areas and that kind of thing, it seemed relatively safe, but it's still unusual and different. 
I had a really good time. Once you get on the roads, it may feel like you're gonna die, but if you've been, if you're with a driver who knows how the traffic works, they'll pretty much be fine. You're just honking your horn almost all the time. It's just like, a, hey, I, I'm here, I exist. So instead of people using their eyes of where the vehicle's around me and looking at their mirrors, they're just always honking. So you can hear where the other cars are kind of. Yeah. And uh, there's another custom that I had never heard of before, but a lot of the people who just live there, if the street lights are good, they turn off the headlights on their car just so it doesn't glare in the eyes of other drivers, which to us, that's like, illegal if you have your lights out the cop will pull you over and tell you to fix them and stuff yeah but there it's well we just turn them off because the street lights are fine <laughs> interesting mm. i had never heard of that you talked some about the cultural norms of corruption at one point mm -hmm. and it it actually made me think of getting to climb one of the queen's pyramids which technically is against the rules unless you have 20 dollars, and then it's totally <laughs> fine <laughs> yeah it's uh it's hard to enforce rules like that when there's so many people who are desperate mm -hmm. you know if i a lot of the people who work in the tourist industry over there are generally working class folks yeah and uh cairo in particular has you know, a lot of poor people in it who really need the money. Mm -hmm. So they're not always very particular about all of the uh, restrictions they're in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just hard to enforce the law when you have a, a combination of desperate people and weak governance. And unfortunately, Egypt has had quite a bit of both. Yeah, and the conversations we've had about Egypt, it seems like their military has made a bunch of key decisions about who gets to rule in the past 30 years or so. Uh, they've made all of the decisions <laughs> about who's going to rule. Yeah, they've uh, pretty much been in charge since the 1950s. Because that was, it used to be a monarchy, actually. It was a monarchy that had been... Uh, Oh, I don't think it was, I don't think it was installed by the British. I think they had had a pre-existing monarchy, but it was maintained by the British and it was closely tied with the British for a long time. You know, the British never outright like conquered Egypt. Uh, Egypt had been like, uh, well, they had been part of the Ottoman Empire, like in the 1800s or so. Uh, but they were always semi-autonomous. You know, they were not like uh, fully under the direct control of the Ottoman government. They had their own government and were borderline autonomous. And what the British and Europeans in general did is basically just lent them a lot of money so that they could do public works, you know, different projects, pay for this, that, and the other. And uh, when the government borrowed too much and struggled to pay it back, they did what every European country did in the late 1800s in that circumstance, which is to land troops and uh, force the government to give up certain rights. And if I'm remembering correctly, uh, what they demanded was the right to run Egypt's customs service. That wasn't uncommon in that period. So basically, customs were 
the main source of revenue for most governments at the time. Because back in the 1800s, nobody really had like an income tax. You know, invariably, most tax revenue came just from uh, taxing imports. You know, I'm sure there's some exceptions. Maybe some historians know some more about that than I do. But from what I remember, uh, customs were important. And so European powers, when they wanted to press a government that was in debt, they would ask for that. You know, they would have Europeans in control of the customs service. They would run it. And then uh, the European banks would get some cut of it in order to pay off the debt. And on the downside, that's a violation of sovereignty. Uh, but the upshot is that custom services were generally better and sometimes even generated more revenue than they had before because generally they were a little less corrupt. That was uh, something I read in a book I've been reading about uh, China anyway. Uh, European powers famously took control of uh, China's custom service. And from what I've been reading, uh, the custom service performed much better and generated much more revenue after that. You know, obviously that's a violation of sovereignty and there's significant negative political uh, connotation to that. But, uh, you know, regardless of that, you know, looking at just in terms of how much money was being generated, it was generating more because uh, the local officials were not stealing quite as much. So uh, Europeans d did that, you know, they got the custom service. And one of the results of that is one of the fallout, some of the fallout from that is that uh, Egypt became more and more independent of the Ottoman Empire until the point when it basically became independent. I don't know quite the timeline for that. Somebody more familiar with Egyptian history uh, would know that. Uh, but over time, it became more and more of a British protectorate, basically. Uh, but I say protectorate because there was never a point when the British, like, again, outright overthrew the government and replaced it. You know, lots of influence, yes, and I think there was British troops present, but uh, it was not, like, incorporated into the British Empire quite like, say, southern Africa or India or what have you. So the monarch, uh, the king, as it were, continued to rule Egypt until the 1950s. And at that point, uh, he uh, something happened. I don't remember quite what it was, but it was something that really highlighted the fact that the uh, monarchy was dependent on British protection and was closely associated with British interests. And so nationalists turned on the monarchy. And keep in mind, this is the post-World War II anti-colonial period. You know, decolonization was very much, you know, uh, happening in the world at that time. That was the big trend. And uh, the major movement in the Arab world at that time was pan-Arab nationalism. And the pan-Arab nationalists obviously did not like foreign interference, the British in particular. And so they turned on the monarchy as a kind of proxy for uh, Britain and British interests and kicked them out. And the guy that took charge after that in 19, I want to say 53, maybe, or maybe it was even later than that. I don't remember the exact year. Let's say mid 50s or so. Uh, Nasser. It's, uh, uh, Nasser was a Egyptian officer in the Egyptian army. And uh, he led the coup that overthrew the monarch. And he installed himself as the new president and set up the uh, Republic of Egypt, which continues to exist to this day. And Nasser ruled as an authoritarian for, I want to say, what, through the rest of the 50s, the 60s, and then through the early 70s. There was some, uh, he was very popular for a long time, but then he lost a lot of popularity after he lost the Yom Kippur War. Uh, against Israel. You know, losing the Arab-Israeli wars was very damaging politically for him. 
for obvious reasons. And uh, but after he was gone, after what it would have been like roughly 20 years of military rule by that point. Uh, after he left, he was replaced by another army officer named uh, Sadat. And Sadat was the guy who famously uh, signed the Camp David Accords uh, that resulted in peace between uh, Israel and Egypt. Uh, for which he was assassinated not long after, and there's some very upset people about that. Uh, but regardless, after he left, I don't quite remember who took power after Sadat. I think that was, was that Hosni Mubarak? I think it was. I think Mubarak came in right after him. So Mubarak was another army officer who came in and replaced Sadat. And he famously ruled Egypt for like 30 years, what, through the 80s, through the 90s, through the aughts, right up until the Arab Spring in 2011 or so. So he was one. He was probably the longest single president who served uh, in Egypt since the republic was formed in the 1950s. So Nasser, uh, Sadat, and Mubarak all were army officers, and they all governed Egypt uh, using what were called emergency powers. And especially Mubarak, he was in particular known for that. And so technically, it was a republic, but it was always army officers and the army. Uh, that controlled things behind the scenes and also in front of the scenes, I guess, since they technically held the presidency. Uh, after the Arabs, well, when the Arab Spring happened, the Muslim Brotherhood had held power for a couple of years. That was the, I think that was the Morsi government, if I'm remembering his name right. And they were very unpopular. They didn't, you know, they weren't very competent. They did some controversial things. You know, some of the conservative views they held kind of ran contrary to uh, some of the more secular beliefs of the urban population in particular. You know, pan-Arab nationalism had many flaws, but, you know, among its benefits is that it was relatively modernist and relatively secular. And uh, a lot of the pan-Arab nationalists in Egypt didn't like the Muslim Brotherhood or Mohammed Morsi for that reason. Also, it probably didn't help that there was probably some sabotage in effect. You know, one of the things I read is that after Morsi came to power, the uh, traffic officers and the police became much less competent. And uh, after he was gone, you know, when the military got back into con got control back, uh, all of a sudden, all those traffic officers and police were back to their old form, you know, almost overnight. It was apparently quite noticeable from the article I read about it. But uh, during Morsi's rule, he was very unpopular, uh, partly for those reasons that I described. And so eventually the Egyptian, I mean, eventually there were mass protests against him and the Egyptian military supported them. And eventually they overthrew Morsi in a coup and installed the current president, uh, Al-Sisi. And he, again, was an army officer and he has shown little interest in trying to propagate Egyptian democracy or build on any of the gains that were made in the Arab Spring. In fact, he's pretty much reversed all of them at this point. So other than that brief couple-year window, when uh, the Muslim Brotherhood was technically in power, it's been all army, pretty much from the start of the Republic in Egypt, for the past roughly half century plus. So yes, that's the long-winded answer to your question. Yes, the, the army is very much in control there. Are there any other countries that 
you would say had a similar role for their military in just making those who gets to govern decisions? Uh, Turkey we have, used to, Sorry? We haven't pointed out that a government must necessarily have the monopoly on violence yeah. in their area, but this seems to be on a different level than that. Yeah, you know, militaries are supposed to maintain monopoly. Well, the police do the monopoly on violence generally on like the local civil level. But yeah, the army is responsible, you know, for protecting the country and, uh, you know, wielding violence on the part of the country in emergencies. But uh, they're not really supposed to be involved in governance. There generally should be. As a general rule, the best form of governance involves civilian control over the military. Because uh, military men, you know, military officers are not generally known for their ability to engage in uh, enlightened politics, as it were. But it were otherwise. But as is, the Egyptian military basically controls the country's politics. You're asking if there's any comparable countries. Turkey used to be like that. The Turkish military has wielded an immense amount of power in uh, post-Ottoman Turkey. But that's kind of changed with the onset of uh, democratization in the 1990s. When the AKP came to power, uh, they were more, you know, kind of a pro-business Islamist party. They've more and more gained control over the apparatus of state. And it could be that the military could still launch a coup if it really wanted to. It's not entirely clear just how much control Erdogan and the AKP have over the Turkish military, but it's a lot more than they used to be. And certainly the Turkish military is not so overt in their political interventions as they used to be. You know, it used to happen quite regularly and they weren't shy about it. And, you know, now they at least pretend to respect civilian authority. So maybe not so much Turkey anymore, although they could yet surprise us. Uh, another country that fits that bill would be Thailand. You know, the Thai military is pretty much the same, you know, in the same way that the Egyptian military has run the Egyptian government for the past half century. Plus the Thai military also has pretty much run the Thai government pretty consistently for, you know, even longer, maybe 60, 70 years or so, you know, starting roughly with the 1930s, I think is when they first overthrew the government and installed themselves. You know, there have been kind of intermittent civilian governments over that time period, especially uh, after the Cold War ended. I think there was more democratization in the 90s. And that lasted pretty much through the 90s and aughts up until... Well, when was it? Was it 2006? I think there was a brief military coup in 2006, but I think they returned to the barracks relatively quickly. The more recent one was like uh, 2014, 2016. And that one has not seen a return to liberal democracy anyway. Technically they have had elections and there is a new constitution, which is democratic, but it heavily favors the military as an institution. And right now a former general is president and they've cracked down on opposition parties. So pretty, prototypical military government behavior there, all told. So Egypt, Thailand, and maybe Turkey all kind of fall into those categories. I think Fiji had a military government for a while, but I'm not sure where they are with that right now. And... I guess you're, you you want, like, present-day examples, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Technically, Mali has a military government. 
Well, I don't know that you could say they have a history of it since that's pretty new. Sudan has had a military government for decades, but that just was overthrown last year. And we talked at length, I think, about the Sudan protests and revolution. Uh, don't know enough African history to know. I'm sure there's lots of examples there. Latin America has a lot of history with military coups, but that's a little different. And there's not really contemporary examples. Yeah, I guess those would be the main ones I would cite. Egypt, Thailand, and uh, sort of kind of, well, Pakistan, I guess I should say Pakistan. Pakistani military also does that. They interfere regularly in governance. I think they've been a little better about giving space to civilian governance. They're a little less overbearing than the Egyptian military or the Turkish military, for that matter. And they've allowed... Uh, civil society to form, you know, lawyers, for example, the judiciary is more or less independent in Pakistan, although they have been heavily pressured by the military at various times. But I think the judiciary is more independent in Pakistan than it is in, you know, Egypt or Thailand. Uh, but, and also the Pakistani military has allowed civilian government to rule for more extended periods. There was a Bhutto government for a number of years in the seventies, uh, there was technically a civilian government for like 10 years after independence, roughly, that the military kind of let go. And after Musharraf, Musharraf, after Musharraf was overthrown back in like, uh, what, early mid-aughts, whenever it was, uh, since then there's been semi-consistent civilian rule, you could say. Yeah, I think Bhutto was in power for a while, and uh, then we had, Sh what's his name? Sharif, I think. And then there, and now we have uh, the cricket player, <laughs> Khan, I think his name is. So I think this is the longest, I think right now we're in the longest period of civilian rule, but the Pakistani military is still wield significant influence in the country's politics to the point where Khan, the current prime minister, may well be in cahoots with the military. There's a strong suspicion that uh, he acts on behalf of the military as in, and is in a kind of de facto alliance with them. But that's debatable. So I guess those four then would be my answer. Egypt, Thailand, Pakistan, and Turkey. Those are the big examples I can think of. Nice, thank you. Yeah, in a lot of cases, the military, I mean, obviously the military has the advantage of having the monopoly on violence. So if they want to use that just to overthrow the other branches of government, it's not that hard if you can get enough support within the military to do it. You know, I mean, uh, I'm sure there's lots of brave clerks and you know other such people in the other branches of government, like the legislature and the executive, but they don't, I think, hold up very well against sustained fire from infantry. So the military has the advantage in terms of violence. And it doesn't help that in a lot of cases, militaries as an institution developed faster than other institutions. You know, I mean, if you're in a developing country, it's kind of easier to develop an advanced military just because you can send officers and get them trained by, you know, this, that, or the other power or country. And you can also just buy advanced weaponry. And generally, that's enough to get you a relatively decent military. During the Cold War, it was especially easy because uh, 
the United States and the Soviet Union wanted to train officers uh, from developing countries so that they would have an edge in the country's politics. You know, if things really went to shit, you could always have a friendly military officer launch a coup. Not necessarily on your behalf. You know, countries do have free agency in their own politics. Uh, but the CIA and the KGB were quite interested in wielding influence through that uh, through that avenue. It still happens today, but to a lesser degree. It's not quite as useful because politics have evolved since then, but similar dynamic. Yeah, asymmetrical development of institutions is a tricky problem. Not sure how we got onto that. Mm. Egypt. We were talking about Egypt, yeah, and then we talked about militaries deciding who gets to rule. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that came from Eritrea. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, I'm remembering now. Yeah, Eritrea, Red Sea, Egypt, and so on. Yeah, Egyptian political culture is... Uh, unfortunately rather authoritarian i don't know if it's always been authoritarian or if that's a legacy of decades of pan-arab nationalism but uh it unfortunately doesn't seem to leave a lot of room for liberalism and it's been getting worse actually egypt's kind of been out of the news for obvious reasons uh, but the egyptian government under al-sisi has been cracking down and he's been uh, entrenching his own power he's been you know changing rules here and there to uh, make it harder to oppose him and he's also been arresting more people there was an italian research student who went to egypt and i think he was he was researching some aspect of egyptian politics i don't remember what it was exactly but he ended up getting detained by uh, the egyptian police and uh, they apparently tortured him to death near as we can tell but the Egyptian government has been very cagey about it, and they say they don't know what happened, and you know they're obfuscating, obviously. But there hasn't really been any accounting for that. So that just speaks to the degree of paranoia there and unaccountability by the Egyptian police forces. Yeah, I think I kind of remember how they do that, because the Egyptian judiciary is also relatively decent. They actually, you know, countries like Thailand and Egypt that were more independent than other countries and were relatively more developed economically and politically. One of the things they did is that they would hire European judges to come and fill out their uh, judicial system so that it would be more professional, basically, because they didn't have uh, trained enough locally trained judges to fill out their judiciary and have it able to do the same kinds of things that European judiciaries were able to do. So because of that, uh, the judiciary in Thailand and Egypt and not also Turkey and equivalent countries is relatively more advanced than in other developing countries. Uh, so what the Egyptian military did in order to kind of curtail the Egyptian judiciary's independence is they started appointing judges who were former military officers. So almost most of the judges in the Egyptian judiciary right now are actually people who used to be officers in the military. And because they do that, they're able to uh, continue the military's control over the country's politics because all of the well, I don't want to say all of them, but most of the officers in the military kind of know each other. There are patronage networks within the military. And so those patronage networks operate outside of any one institution. You know, they're dependent on uh, people giving jobs, money, pensions, etc. And uh, because of that, you know, because that's the principal political force in Egyptian politics, 
uh, Egyptian military officers are able to significantly influence the judiciary because the people they appoint there are part of their patronage network and can be influenced through that network. I think they also bribe people to vote for them. I remember watching a documentary about the Arab Spring back in the day, and one of the guys protesting was not actually protesting for democracy. He was actually protesting to get paid because after he voted in the last election, the Egyptian government had never paid him for voting <laughs> correctly. And uh, he wanted to fight for his dues, I think was the word he used, something to that effect. So there, there are apparently uh, patronage networks in politics as well, beyond the military. It's what you would call in India a voting bank or something to that effect. I'm out here voting against my conscience so that you can win unfairly and I don't even get paid. Come on, <laughs> dude. Well, I mean, if you're not going to take democratic institutions seriously, you might as well get paid while you do it. <laughs> You know, that just illustrates the importance of liberal democratic political culture, because you can have votes in elections, but it doesn't mean much if people don't really, again, take them seriously. You're supposed to vote your conscience. You're supposed to vote for the candidate you think is best. But, you know, if, if you don't have faith in the system or you don't understand how the system works, then you may find it very feasible and efficacious to sell your vote. That's not uncommon. Uh, or to just vote for the guy who you think can get you the most benefits in terms of uh, patronage benefits like jobs or even just money payments, uh, you know, something like that, basically. It's, it's a hard thing to teach people who are not familiar with the idea. You know, a lot of developing countries have that problem where they want to modernize the political culture, but find it difficult to get enough of the population to understand the ideas to make it work. You know, China had that problem after the fall of the Qing dynasty back in 1911. There were lots of uh, people who wanted to set up a republic, and they did, but most of the people were rural peasants, and they had no experience with that kind of governance. And it was just very difficult to try to get them to understand. And that was one of the big uh, challenges that they faced and were never really able to fully overcome. You know, it pretty much, uh, pretty much the only thing that was able to really mobilize the peasants were the communists. And that's because they promised them better governance and lower taxes, ironically. Yeah, I think I remember I was talking to a professor I knew in college, and he had been to Argentina. And uh, Argentina had a military that was governed by a military junta for a long time. And he was actually in Argentina after uh, the junta gave up power and the country democratized. So there was sort of that weird transitory phase there between military government and democratic government. And one of the things he noticed is that a lot of people thought that democracy meant that they didn't have to pay for college. Hmm. So there was a lot of people who were, you know, just kind of, they would just show up to classes. You know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't sign up. They wouldn't pay tuition. They would just kind of show up. And, you know, in their minds, democracy meant that they would get what they wanted. So I don't think that's representative of everybody in Argentina at that time. You know, I'm sure there were people who didn't think like that. But, you know, that kind of mindset is something that, for one, it's just part of lack of familiarity with democratic political culture. But it also is one of the consequences of authoritarian governance 
because uh, you know when the government is unpopular and authoritarian, you tend to define democracy as being just the opposite of that. So you know it's not just the opposite of political violence and repression and political prisons and that kind of thing. It's also the opposite of everything else you don't like in society. And so when you transition to a democracy, then people have very high expectations. It's not just the end of political violence. They also expect all of other, all of the other social ills in the country to also be addressed. And uh, of course, that's not generally what happens. You know, generally, you can, you can end the political violence, but there are still going to be political problems, economic problems, social problems, etc. Those continue. There are certain kinds of problems that are just immutable and almost intractable. And they're very difficult to address beyond uh, anything short of the long term. And unfortunately, that's been the downfall of more than a few transitory democracies uh, over the past couple of decades. But yeah, was there anything else that uh, you wanted to touch on here? Mm, not that I can think of right now. Gotcha. I don't think we have any questions. Let me see if I can find it. I have to find the right channel. Agent Smith is in the top section. Yeah, I always scroll by it because I think it's lower. It's right above general. Yeah. General. Okay, we did have some questions left over, so we could try some of those. I'm good with it. Let's see, I think we did answer some of these. Yeah, okay. So this was a question from last week. What do you think of Singapore's current authoritarian political system contrasting how it worked when developing as a country to how it will affect the country's development in the future? Yeah, Singapore has an interesting political system. It's authoritarian, but not explicitly. It's, it's almost what you would call an illiberal democracy, but it's much better functioning than most illiberal democracies. You know, like uh, Eastern European liberal democracies or uh, South Asian liberal democracies. Yeah, I think uh, part of that just comes down to what was his name? Lee Kuan something? I don't quite remember. He was sort of the founding father of Singapore. Uh, he led the political party that dominated Singapore's politics and that basically ran the country uh, for half century or so until he died. And uh, having political vision and the sufficient political support to enact that vision, part of that is why they were able to make their development model work. It also helped that they were just sort of naturally a natural trading destination. Singapore has long been a trading intrapod in Far Eastern trade. So they, were able, so they had a lot to work with from the start. But it would have been easy to screw that up you know, getting money from intraput trade, you know, being a middleman in the trade between East and West, you know, you can get a lot of money from that, but you also have to invest it wisely. You have to invest in education. You still have to fight corruption, you know, you know all of that kind of stuff. And the party was able to do that pretty successfully. I think it was called the PP. No, I don't remember what the party was. 
had a lot of peas in it from what I remember. But anyway, yeah, Singapore was able to leverage their status as an intraput and uh, use the money to invest in human capital. And in turn, they were able to produce, say, an, an economy that was defined by the services sector. It took a while to do that. You know, they transitioned from being more about services for uh, trade to kind of being a manufacturing center, you know, I think more light manufacturing. Uh, but then from there, they were able to transition into more of a uh, high-tech business consultant type services economy. And uh, they've been able to produce an economy that is has one of the highest standards of living in the region. You know, it's one of the Asian tiger economies, as they're called. So the political system in that time was never explicitly authoritarian in the sense that they uh, used violence to maintain their rule in the country. And they did have relatively open elections. Uh, the way that they're illiberal, you know, the way that they're authoritarian is by basically abusing the electoral system. You know, they use the, they have an electoral system that inherently benefits the status quo, that benefits the uh, primary party. And they don't always allow fully open elections where just anybody can run. You know, there's a high barrier to entry and there's very strict laws regarding freedom of speech. You know, there's a lot of things that you can't say and there's a lot of punishment if you say the wrong thing. So there's good disincentive there. And of course, there's all the little thing. Yeah, I mean, the famous one is that you can be punished for chewing, you know, spitting gum out on the street, something like that. You know, lots of punishments that... Uh, for bad behavior, as it were. But that's just the kind of uh, paternalistic political system that uh, Lee Kuan had. You know, he wanted to kind of reshape the people of Singapore. He didn't just want to develop the economy, he also wanted to cultivate good habits. It's almost kind of similar to the way Japan modernized. You know, when there was uh, this, in the late night, in the late 1800s, you know, Japan wanted to modernize, but there was this open question about how to modernize. Like, how do you do that? And how do you become as advanced as European countries technologically, legally, you know, et cetera? And they didn't really know entirely. You know, obviously there was the technological sides. You know, you can send students to study at Western universities and learn all the newest engineering techniques and models and what have you. And, uh, you know, you can train technicians, you know, you can do all these technical kinds of things, but that, that doesn't really answer the question of how you get a functioning liberal democracy or a functioning uh, judiciary or uh, a political system that is not defined by corruption. You know, these are more difficult uh, aspects of Western institutions to emulate. And so the answer that the Japanese came up with was just to try to copy as much of Western society as possible up to the point uh, that they required men to wear mustaches and beards modeled on the uh, Western fashion and wearing Western uniforms, wearing Western clothes, you know, all this, you know, the very minute detail in many cases. So there's kind of something similar in, in that sense to Singapore. You know, they didn't just emulate Western models of uh, uh, legal systems, you know, the economy, you know, laissez-faire economics, uh, political systems, etc. They also tried uh, to a very detailed degree to try to manage people's behavior. You know, and so maybe that's not entirely copying the West in the sense, in that sense, but just trying to enforce uh, public morality to a great degree. So that's kind of how they developed, roughly. Uh, 
how it's going to affect their development in the future. I mean, it seems to be working for them. I mean, you can, I mean, China kind of shows that you can have an authoritarian political system and still have a growing economy. Uh, I think the challenge there is not so much having a growing economy, uh, but having an economy that is able to generate new jobs, new growth, etc. Because uh, I think it's quite possible to get a job in Singapore, but it's getting more expensive to live there. You know, it has all of these problems that we associate with developed economies, you know, high cost of living, uh, high rent, uh, etc. You know, lack of sufficient job, job growth for all graduates, uh, that kind of thing. So I think overall, you know, the key ingredients to having a successful modern economy are there, you know, rule of law, good infrastructure, you know, uh, independent judiciary, all that stuff. But having an economy that is innovative enough to continue to grow perpetually, that, that's going to be a challenge going forward. And it's not entirely clear if they're going to be able to surpass that and break through the middle income trap that uh, all of the Asian tiger economies have kind of hit over the past 10 years. But I don't know that it's going to be a huge problem. Like, I don't think there's going to be a collapse in the standard of living or anything dramatic like that. I mean, overall, the economy is strong. It's healthy. You know, standard of living is high. It's a good place to live, as it were. So I don't, I don't think that the authoritarian political system will inhibit that all that much. Because, again, it's not like China, where the government is so authoritarian that it intrudes on the economic sphere and there's just rampant corruption. Uh, you know, in Singapore's case... Uh, the government is authoritarian, but they're very professional about it. You know, they have very clear lines that they stay in, and they generally don't go out and impede economic activity that much. You know, it's more like if, uh, I mean, to kind of use the Japanese and South Korean examples again, in Japan, their development model very much fused private interest with state interests. So yes, the state had an important role, but the Zaibatsu, for example, were owned by individual families. And so there was a personal interest at stake there in seeing the country succeed. So they kind of got around the principal agent problem that you get when you put state actors in control of the economy. Like if you're a state actor, if you're like a professional manager hired by the state to manage the economy, you don't really have all that much interest in performing all that well because you pretty much get paid the same regardless. You know, that was one of the problems they had in the Soviet Union and it's been a problem in some uh, economies in the 70s and 60s that tried to do import substitution development. Uh, you know, there's just not that same incentive to perform. Whereas with the family-owned Zaibatsu, uh, there was an obvious incentive to reform, and the state largely acted as an enabler in order to help them achieve those goals. And, uh, you know, that doesn't always work. Sometimes the family-run businesses can be just as corrupt and inefficient as, you know, any centrally planned economy or even, you know, even other private, private economies, it comes down to personality in some cases. But in the case of the Zaibatsu, they were able to make it work. And there was a similar dynamic at play in South Korea with the um, Chobals, Cabals. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. But basically, they were quite, kind of a rough equivalent in South Korea to the Zaibatsu in Japan. You know, they were largely owned by families and run as private businesses, but they had a lot of help from the state. You know, the state kind of tried to enable them and make them give them as much many advantages as they could in order to make ensure that they were competitive over the long term. So similarly in Singapore, uh, you know, the party there was kind of in cahoots with private sector interests to a degree. 
And so that made them more uh, receptive to feedback from the private sector, uh, such that they were less willing to be overbearing and to overly tax them. Uh, that's in contrast to China, where the party has much more of a parasitic relationship with the private sector. It's kind of a testament to just how much catch-up growth there was after uh, the Cultural Revolution and just how large and you know dynamic the Chinese economy is, that they've been able to grow as much as they have in spite of all of the rampant corruption in the political system. You know, Even as developed as the Chinese economy has become, how far you can get as a business owner still has a lot more to do with the people you know in government than it does with uh, your own abilities, you know, your own ability to produce or innovate. And that's, you know, an unfortunate break on the Chinese economy. And it's one that's going to become more and more of a problem as uh, the economy becomes more and more complex. But the point there is to illustrate that uh, the Chinese economy has that barrier there and it's going to hold them back much more than if they would open up and be more open like Singapore or Japan or South Korea. So Singapore doesn't have that problem. Their political authorities are much less parasitic. You know, there is, there is corruption, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure that they had a, a close, again, an uncomfortably close uh, relationship with a number of private sector actors. But from what little I've read about Singapore's development, uh, they were able to make that work by empowering the private sector rather than living off of them. So I don't think, so long as they keep doing that, they should be okay. It, would, it might be better if they opened up the economy more and had fewer restrictions. But in general, Singapore has one of the more competitive economies from the rankings I've seen. So I guess that, uh, what's the old phrase? The best form of government is enlightened despotism, something like that. You know, Singapore kind of has that. You know, it's uh, in different hands, it would be too authoritarian to generate economic growth. But as is, the current leadership has been able to make it work by... Uh, focusing on laissez-faire economic policies that have uh, produced a number of competitive firms. And maybe they'll have to make some changes from that. You know, laissez-faire is not great by itself. You know, you do need to make adjustments now and then, and they may have reached a point where they need to. But for now, it's still growing pretty effectively. It's, it's producing sufficient growth that you can still call it a developed economy. Anyway, that's kind of a word salad, so I'll cut my losses. <laughs> let's see so if i ever you know if i ever don't answer the question to the questioner's satisfaction you know i don't even know if they're listening right now but just in general if i ever don't answer a question to the someone's satisfaction you know you can feel free to elaborate and ask me again and i'm happy to return to it sometimes i don't get the gist of the questions and i kind of go off on a tangent and don't quite and get to the root of it. So let's see. The next question was, does the move from New York Stock Exchange, well, wait, does move from New York Stock Trade to Hong Kong is even a thing? As Hong Kong stock market isn't a private company, as New York stock, but a national stock, and because of the limits of the Chinese stock markets, the real, not state-owned, boring, stagnant companies are trying to get money at, example, New York. Seems like going back to the original problem is not a solution to the new problem. I'm going to have to read that again. Hang on. 
I guess I'm not sure what the original problem they're referring to is. I mean, the reason that trade is moving from New York to Hong Kong is that uh, a number of Chinese companies are under pressure because of the trade war. You know, the U.S. has passed uh, some new laws that require foreign companies uh, that want to have an IPO on the New York Stock Exchange or just in American financial markets in general, they have to adhere under the new laws to reporting standards in the United States, which is not something that they'd really been doing. You know, some of them did, some didn't. It wasn't entirely consistent. Uh, But that's a problem for Chinese companies in particular, uh, because there are certain laws in China, I think, that restrict their ability to report openly. And in some cases, they just don't want to regardless, So, because it's a more opaque business culture over there. So a lot of Chinese companies are worried about that law, and they're also worried about the potential for future restrictions. You know, In general, the trading relationship between the United States and China is not healthy right now. So there are concerns about whether or not uh, it's a good idea to invest now in an IPO in the United States, given that there could be new laws and restrictions that force you to divest, or maybe that tax you, or maybe the government seizes assets like you don't know what will happen so because of uncertainty and the new laws then a lot of chinese companies are just doing their ipos in hong kong instead of new york and you know that's pretty workable and there's not any reason they can't you you might be able to make more money on more advantageous terms in new york but hong kong is perfectly serviceable so i don't think it's really a problem per se I'm not sure why they mentioned some of this other stuff. I guess I would ask for elaboration on the question, which is unfortunate because this is from this is from last week, so I don't know if they're still here. Question was from Cintiora Via. So if you're out there, please uh, elaborate if you can, because I'm not quite sure what the gist of it is here. Hong Kong isn't a private company like the New York Stock Exchange is. That's true but a national stock and because of the, and yeah, there's a lot of limits on Chinese stock markets like Shanghai. So that's not, they're not really ready for international competition in that regard. A lot of companies in China that want access to Western financial markets have to navigate lots of restrictions in China because the Chinese government restricts the outflow of capital and money because that's because they want to mitigate for one, they want to prevent a financial collapse because that's kind of what happened in the Asian financial crisis. So China, like a lot of Asian countries now, has restrictions on how much capital can flow in and out of the country or flow at all. Uh, Part of it also has to do with currency controls. You know, by uh, restricting the inflow and outflow of capital, uh, you can influence the value of your currency. So what you need to do as a Chinese company, if you want to get past those restrictions, is uh, you deal with Hong Kong, basically. You set up a shell company in Hong Kong and you operate through that. You know, Hong Kong has a special arrangement with uh, other countries like the U.S. and the U.K., or at least it used to. So it was uh, easy then for Westerners to invest in Hong Kong, much more so than in mainland China, where all those restrictions applied. And so by operating through these shell companies, Chinese companies were able to gain access to international finance from Western markets. So I'm sure the Chinese government would like for the Shanghai Stock Exchange to be internationally competitive, But until they relax and liberalize those uh, currency restrictions and capital restrictions, that's probably not going to happen. So until then, Hong Kong is paramount. 
but I'm not real sure how that ties into the question here as far as companies moving from uh, the New York Stock Exchange to the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Yeah, I guess I would have to punt on the question then. So my apologies. Uh, let's see. So I guess the next question... Russia-sponsored cyber attacks have recently been punishing U.S. agencies and companies, possibly enabled by the U.S. administration, weakening our cyber defense agencies. What do you think this means strategically? Cyber is a tricky thing, strategically speaking. I mean, uh, actually, there was just a big hack that was uh, announced, well, maybe, not, maybe not announced, but revealed, I guess, this past week. That was the... Uh, Solar something? What was it? I'm sure chat remembers. We have lots of tech people in chat. I don't quite remember what the fancy name they gave the big hack recently was, but solar something. But cyber is tricky because there's not really any norms internationally governing cyber warfare such as it is. You know, So it's not entirely clear how much uh, of a cyber breach, you know, how big of a hack how big a hack has to be before it necessitates some kind of uh, government recognition and retaliation, you know? So there's no clear red lines there. It's all just very ambiguous. Uh, the U.S. government, for its part, I think going back to the Obama administration, has taken the view that they need to develop the capacity to hit back. You know, they need to develop offensive hacking capabilities as a deterrent uh, so that uh, countries won't try to do this. But obviously, they're still trying it, so I'm not sure that the deterrent idea is really has really been effective. And even so, I think another criticism of the deterrent approach is that it's not always possible to uh, attribute uh, attribute. Uh, it's not always possible to attribute the uh, source of an attack, which is kind of important if you do want to retaliate. So the deterrent effect, the deterrent approach is not necessarily the best one. Some people argue that it would be better to focus on, uh, for one, education, you know, having good uh, cyber hygiene, as it were, so that it's harder for hackers to penetrate. You know, for as fancy as hacking and cyber warfare sound, a lot of it still comes down to stupid shit, you know, like uh, people clicking on links that they really shouldn't be clicking on, opening emails they shouldn't be opening, that kind of thing. It's... Hacking is all very impressive until you realize that some of it is just people setting their password as password. Now, there's some more... Yeah, the hack is less impressive when the security is not good. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's quite a bit of that. Now, there is we more... We did get the name of it in the chat. It's Solar Winds. Solar Winds. Thank you. Solar Winds. Now, there are more advanced techniques. Uh, I think in the case of the Solar Winds hack, it was... Uh, what was it? Software that allowed remote control of a computer, remote access to a computer, uh, that company was hacked rather than the government itself. And the, what was done is that the hackers penetrated uh, an update that Solar wanted to uh, distribute. So when the update was sent out, uh, the hack was sent with it or the program, or, you know, you can tell I don't have a background in computer science, but basically that's how they hacked the government. Uh, the, the hackers were able to penetrate the government by way of the update from the company. So that's a more sophisticated approach uh, than just like spear phishing or something like that. But strategically, it's hard to judge just because it is all, there's no norms governing that. I mean, I don't know what the government is going to do or even if they should do something. 
there's talk that it was Russia. I think Bellingcat has been trying to look into that and they suspect it's Russia. But I mean, even if it is, what do you do about it? Do you hack something in Russia? I mean, like, what's the response? And if you do respond, how does Russia respond? Is there not a threat of a, a escalatory spiral? You know, it's all just very muddy and there's no clear like doctrine for that in the United States or really much of anywhere else. It's the kind of thing that you should probably have some kind of international convention with which to address. But uh, even if you did, it may not matter much because ultimately I don't know that cyber warfare is the best framing for this. I suspect the military frames it like that because they want to, well, basically mission creep. <laughs> you know, the, the military as a bureaucracy, as an institution, wants more responsibility and they want to have responsibility over cyber defenses, as they call it. But really, it's more espionage than warfare. So I don't know that the Department of Defense is really the best institution to be given uh, responsibility for this. You know, it might be better. I don't know that the CIA or the NSA would necessarily be great either. You know, there's some trust issues there. Uh, but maybe a new independent institution or maybe something like the FBI might be better. Space Force. Space Force. Yeah. Yeah. We. <laughs> I kind of wonder what's going to happen to that. Are they going to keep that with the Biden administration? I don't know. But with the uh, with cyber warfare, it's really not warfare. It's more just espionage. And a lot of the things that hackers do that engage in this kind of stuff, they're really just doing things that traditional spies have always done. You know, it's just less sexy now. It's not so much uh, tricking somebody into thinking you're in love with them and then giving you documents. Now it's more just copying and pasting things, which is less dramatic. You can't really make a James Bond movie out of that, unfortunately. But because it's so prototypical, I mean, it's just kind of normal for espionage like that to be carried out. It may not be that there's going to be a lot of action on this in terms of like retaliation or I don't think it's going to be considered an act of war in the future. You know, I suspect it's going to be treated more like uh, traditional spying. You know, I suspect that's the long term equilibrium. So there's probably ultimately going to be more of a focus on defensive measures. You know, how do you ensure uh, safety, you know, the safety of your data, the safety of information, especially classified information? How do you ensure you inform your workforce uh, to be aware of uh, hacking strategies and tactics and whatnot, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. We already do that to a degree. One of the things I read about the Solar Winds hack is that uh, it wasn't likely that sensitive information was compromised because apparently there are mechanisms in place within the network uh, to protect classified information from break-ins like this. Uh, maybe they weren't expecting exactly this vector, you know, they, they weren't expecting this to happen per se, but they know that hacks can happen and that there are vulnerabilities in the network. And so with that in mind, there apparently are redundancies and defensive measures within the network put in place to make that information more difficult to get to. So maybe something was compromised and I don't know about it, but I thought it was interesting uh, to read a little bit about some of the defensive measures that had been taken in the network uh, in anticipation of a, of a major breach of the network like this. So I suspect that's more going to be the future rather than the Department of Defense, you know, engaging in cyber warfare over the cyber terrain, as they sometimes frame it. Is it going to be like Tron? Yeah, that's how Hollywood likes to paint it. What was the other one? There was that, ha what was the movie? Hackers in the early 90s? 
with Angelina Jolie. Anytime there's hacking in a movie, anyone who's used a computer before is just like, that's not how it works. <laughs> yeah, but it's so much drama. Look at how fast they're using that keyboard. <laughs> Man, they're totally going to hack the crap out of that terminal, I can just tell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Hollywood has struggled to uh, make it sexy, as it were. Although Angelina Jolie did help with that a great deal in the early 90s, I think. It was a fun movie. Let's see. So what's our next question here? So we had some new ones for today. What do you know about the royalty of Bhutan? Not much. I know they're Buddhist, but I think most people would be able to guess that. I know it's, um, I don't think it's a constitutional monarchy. I think it's actually an absolute monarchy. So it would be one of the few left on earth if that's the case. I know that they've been moving more towards modernization over the past 10 years or so. They've been focusing on uh, tourism for one, which is unfortunate. That's always a, it's not a, it's not the best industry with which to modernize an economy. It comes with lots of, lots of problems, not even just environmental, just the effect it has on uh jobs and you know it's not a great source of high wage jobs and it doesn't really generally lend to a more developed economy but anyway that's a whole other conversation uh tourism and infrastructure they've been trying to build more infrastructure connecting them to india and china so that there's more access to those respective markets i think i was not I think they did implement a parliament. I'm not sure how old that was, but I think that's relatively new. So that was something else the royalty wanted to do. Yeah, I think that's all I can remember (laughs) off the top of my head. I haven't read a whole lot about Bhutan's government. I've read a little more about the society. Uh, I actually saw a documentary not too long ago about... Uh, some of the effects that uh, the country's economic modernization has been having. There's apparently like this uh, rare herb or herb or something that you can only find in the mountains. And uh, a lot of people in the mountains of Bhutan who traditionally have been very poor and have made a living off of uh, raising cattle and that kind of thing. Now a lot of them make their money searching for this herb. Or maybe it's... uh, moss i don't i don't remember what exactly it was some kind of plant or something and they make a lot of they make most of their money now just trying to harvest their this plant wherever they can find it because it sells in the west for some damn reason you know some uh herbal medicine something like that i don't know if it's like actual medicine or if it's you know essential oils medicine medicine. (laughs) that kind of thing but it's how essential are these essential oils I'm a little skeptical sometimes, Nero. I don't know. <laughs> but regardless, it sells well enough that a lot of the rural folk have shifted over to just trying to find this stuff. It's not really something you can farm, per se. I think it just does grow in the wild. Maybe it's a type of fungus. Maybe that's it. I don't quite remember. But they spend a lot of time trying to get that. And they also, I think, more people are moving to like the towns and cities because there's just more money to be made there. You know, stuff like that. But yeah, as far as the royalty of Bhutan, 
I guess I don't know that much. Something to read about, I guess. If anybody has any sources, let me know. It could be fun. Let's see. How do you foresee governments plus global businesses evolving with more sophisticated tech? What implications do you expect from wealth disparity? Let's see. It's kind of two different questions there. I mean, as far as uh, governments and global business evolving with more sophisticated tech, I mean, I kind of think we're seeing that uh, in 2020. You know, I think COVID has accelerated a lot of that. Uh, I mean, a lot of the technology now is mostly communications technology, right? So it's revolutionizing things like retail, commerce, banking, you know, anything that requires uh, communication, uh, transference of information, you know, et cetera. So that seems to be the track that we're moving on right now as far as the evolution of business uh, and also government, you know. So I don't know that it's necessarily going to change, fundamentally change how we live. Well, it's going to change that. I think it's more taking business as we knew it and just... Uh, I don't want to use the word accelerating again, but I, I guess I'll just give an example. Like uh, it was already the case that the internet was killing retail. And, uh, you know, COVID has accelerated that very rapidly. There's been a whole bunch of bankruptcies in retail over the past year, but there was all, that was kind of already happening. So e-commerce has been pushing out uh, brick and mortar commerce. And one of the things I read uh, recently that's been having over, happening over 2020 is that a lot of these retail businesses that have been shut down and that had already been facing a lot of competition from e-commerce anyway, have been turning themselves into de facto warehouses. Uh, what they'll do is that they'll still sell their own stuff, uh, but they'll also rent out space so that uh, logistics companies can use that space as storage for goods in transit. So, you know, obviously a lot of logistics is things like shipping, railroads, you know, uh, plane, planes, uh, et cetera. But uh, getting uh, goods, goods from like your major shipping points like ports and large warehouses around cities to specific doorsteps or businesses, uh, that, part of, that part can be a little tricky. So what's happening is that uh, that last leg of the trip uh, increasingly is being outsourced to uh, little minor warehouses that are being set up in these old retail outlets. And a lot of them are making money from that now. I don't know if that's like the future you know, of the uh, commercial space in cities. That's probably an exaggeration. Uh, but that's the kind of shift that we're seeing. And uh, that technological shift is just accelerating that. I mean, again, it's just something that was already happening. And the future technology is probably just going to make that happen more so. It's just going to accelerate it even further. More sophisticated tech. I mean, if there's some new amazing technology like floating cars or some shit, like that could change things significantly. Uh, but most of the tech changes we've seen have been focused on communications and business services. So that's why I kind of focus on that. I mean, you could write a whole book on this question, really. There's the one I... The answer I focus on is logistics, but you could also get into things like uh, 
you know, Zoom, for example, like how do people communicate with each other? How do you monetize that? Uh, things like business services where you can connect talent with uh, businesses and need facing difficult problems like that can be revolutionized. I mean, it's all really just more and more complex elaborations of information sharing when you get right down to it. Like how can you share information such that uh, pre-existing business services and uh, logistical chains can be made more efficient? Yeah, that's kind of all I can think of there. I feel like I should have more on that. But yeah, it's, it's difficult to predict the trajectory of future economic uh, growth, as it were, you know, how business is going to change, how governments are going to change. I mean, I'm focusing on business. I guess governments, though, are probably just going to reflect businesses. Like whatever best practices emerge in business is probably just going to be replicated by government. I don't know that government is really going to innovate a whole lot there. If you have some contrasting examples, you know, feel free to add them in chat. But in general, that's my impression. Generally, businesses lead in terms of innovation and governments follow rather than the other way around. Sometimes governments can fund innovation. You know, sometimes public-private partnerships can produce uh, steps forward. But in terms of things like business services and logistics, generally it's businesses who lead. But yeah, predicting outcomes over the long to medium term, that's just inherently difficult. You know, if I had good answers to that, I would be very wealthy. <laughs> I, would, I would be investing money in that. But that was the first part of the question. The second part of the question was, what implications do you expect from wealth disparity? I think most of that is going to be political. You know, wealth disparity is not inherently a bad thing. Like it's the, it's true that the bottom rung, like the bottom, I think 10% or so of uh, incomes, I think in the United States specifically. And, you know, chat, keep me honest on this. I may be, you know, getting the statistics slightly off. But uh, certainly the bottom rung of incomes has seen a decline in income in the United States over the past couple decades. Uh, but it hasn't been too huge. I think it's like maybe something 15 to 20% maybe. You know, kind of fact check me on that, but that's what I want to say. But uh, overall, incomes have not changed a whole lot. And there's been a whole lot of improvement, obviously, in the top tier. But that isn't inherently a bad thing. You know, partly that reflects complexity in the economy, more jobs, more goods being produced. And uh, it's quite possible for, I mean, the point I want to make is the point that probably most people are familiar with. It's quite possible for inequality to grow without standard of living falling. You know, it's not as though, it's not as though modern inequality is a reflection of sort of Dickensian industrialization, where all these people who had been self-sufficient farmers and herders all of a sudden are having to live terrible squalid lives in, uh, you know, Liverpool or what have you, one of those early industrial cities in England. That's uh, not really what's happening now. Uh, certainly some people have lost out, you know, especially in certain Rust Belt areas, like in the Midwestern United States. But uh, overall, things have been getting better. Overall, standard of living around the world has been improving. And uh, the people who kind of lose out it wouldn't necessarily be hard to help them. That just, I, But that comes down to my original answer, which is that it's going to be a political issue more than an economic one. You know, overall, the world is getting better. You know, the economy is getting better. We have more and better technologies, like overall standard of living is improving. How we redistribute the gains from that is a political question. And how that pans out is anybody's guess. I mean, 
I suspect the answer, and you know, we've talked about this before, I think especially back in like 2017, 2018, the real answer to this question, I think, is that it's going to vary wildly from place to place and that how the answer manifests from place to place will be a reflection of local political culture and preferences. So in Europe, you're probably going to see more redistribution. In the United States, you'll probably see relatively less, although I imagine you'll see some. You know, I have a hard time seeing the status quo as being viable in the long term, given how much political tension there is. Uh, but in other places, it'll just depend on their access to resources. You know, if you're in a developing country, you don't have that many resources to redistribute in the first place. So in those cases, it'll probably look different. I'm not sure how they'll manage that, but I'm sure they'll figure out something <laughs> to their satisfaction. But those are the principal implications. You know, it's probably going to be political tension that results in some new political equilibrium that involves some degree of wealth redistribution or some other placating set of political policies of some variety. In a way, you could say that historically there have been major tech breakthroughs that you could have asked the same question. Yeah. Say a thousand years ago, there's some major tech breakthrough. There are people who are some of the first movers in that tech field and they get super rich really fast. If there's ever too great an income inequality, then people have revolted. That's kind of a, a tug of war basically is there will be some inequality if there's like capitalism and merit and stuff like that. Some people do hustle more than other people. And then there's a difference in opinion. You mentioned US versus Europe. In the United States, we have two kinds of people. We have millionaires and we have temporarily embarrassed soon-to-be millionaires. <laughs> so with that attitude, it basically means, well, the rich earned it, so they should keep it. And people who don't have it, they're just not working hard enough. That's more of a an attitude statement than a, a claim that I'm making. But part of the reason why there isn't as much protesting of income inequality in the U.S. as there might be in some other countries. Yeah, I would agree. You know, it comes down to culture, history, political preferences, etc. You know, those all play in there. But I don't think there's going to be like any one set of general implications that one could point to as a uh, that one would expect from wealth disparity. You know, it's going to have different effects, and there's different types of wealth disparity too. You know, wealth disparity can result from innovation and the growth of new industries, uh, which tend to be owned by, you know, fewer people. So the gains get concentrated in fewer hands. And as a result, inequality blooms, but does, it doesn't necessarily negatively impact the rest of society. But on the other hand, there's also uh, oligarchs, you know, like uh, in the Eastern European vein, you know, sort of in the transition period in the 90s, where you have uh, immense fortunes and wealth amassed mostly through corruption and political connections, more so than from any kind of substantive innovation or contribution to uh, growing the economy. And then, of course, there's just old-fashioned violence, you know, like uh, the Somozas in Nicaragua, for example, whom basically used force and violence uh, to buy out every substantive source of wealth in the country to the point where they just owned just about everything in Nicaragua for a very long time. So... Different kinds of inequality produce different kinds of political outcomes as well. So that's also worth mentioning. There has been the conversation about the amount of work that people are expected to do, which is another question as we get more clever about how we execute stuff, especially jobs that are more based on simple labor. 
if those are outsourced to computers and robots, what do people do? Yeah. Uh, one of the solutions is, well, people could work less and that'd be the new standard instead of a five day to six day a week expectation. Maybe it's a four day. That would be a very big shift in a direction that some people would like. But then again, some people really drive a lot of fulfillment from the work that they do. So just because people work less doesn't mean that they have figured out their purpose and that kind of thing. That's still a very difficult task for any human being. Yeah, I should probably figure that out at some point. <laughs> oh, right. I was on my to-do list. Shit. What is my purpose? <laughs> yeah, well, there's also debt slavery. <laughs> That's also true. A potential solution. I think some of that's already starting to happen. I was reading something about uh, truck drivers have been starting to do that. You know, they have to take on debt to get their rig, but then they're, or they have to take on debt to get trained to drive, something like that. I don't remember the details, but yeah, debt slavery is also a viable solution there. You know, if you can't uh, afford, you know, if you can't find work, you can always just work for pennies and then lean on debt in order to pay your way. Whereupon your lender pretty much owns you. Yeah, there's always going to be jobs for labor. They're just not always necessarily going to be good jobs that pay a living wage. You know, there's always going to be some breakpoint beyond which labor becomes more cost effective than capital, but it just has to be cheap enough. So that could also be a viable future. That would not be an attractive future, I imagine, but technically that is one possible way to go. Yeah, speaking about the United States, you know, one of the things that, you know, just being a nerd, I sometimes think about this stuff. So one of the reasons why uh, I was thinking about why American culture especially conservative American culture, tends to value, uh, you know, free agency and sort of the, uh, to have an aversion to social spending. And uh, obviously there's a whole litany of reasons for that, that, you know, aversion to government power, you know, historical factors, etc. But uh, I thought it was also interesting that, uh, well, a, con a conversation I had with a relative once, this was an older relative, and they were, uh, they had grown up on a farm and they were not like wealthy farmers, you know, they were pretty poor. And, uh, you know, I asked them, this is when I was much, you know, much younger, this was a long time ago, but I asked them if they had thought of themselves as being poor. And they said, no, they actually didn't, even though they, you know, by most standards, they would, would have been considered, would have been considered poor. They didn't think of themselves like that because they had everything they needed. And by their own standard, they were doing pretty well. And that kind of also, that made me think of like uh, developing countries where, you know, if you live in a developing country and you're very poor, you don't necessarily obsess over the fact that you're poor. You know, you just live day to day. And if you're living in a rural area, you probably live off the land the same way your ancestors did. Uh, you know, maybe not exactly the same way, but, you know, similarly. So you kind of have a sense of continuity and a sense of security and that, you know, you kind of know how things are going to pan out. You know how you can make a living. There's predictability there. 
So I think that uh, living poor kind of inculcates, especially over a long period of time, a certain survivalist sense. And that that leaves you kind of inured to the difficulties of being poor. You just kind of accept it and internalize it and it doesn't really bother you. So I think some of that kind of represents itself in the United States in the sense that the United States was mostly a rural country for most of its history up until, what, 100 years ago or so, let's say. And so there's still a lot of people, well, there were still a lot of people up until relatively recently that kind of had that mindset. You know, there is a sense that kind of an optimism, if you like, you know, there's, if you do surveys of people in rural areas and developing countries, they're almost always happier than these, you know, morose assholes who live in cities, you know, people like myself who kind of live better than almost anybody in history and still can't quite be satisfied with it. So that kind of innate sense of optimism and, uh, you know, sort of immunity to difficulty and suffering. I think that plays into that mindset. And it's kind of a positive, I mean, it is, it is a positive trait and it is helpful in day-to-day life. And it kind of makes people focus on what's possible and how to get the most out of life rather than what's wrong with it. So I think that is a pretty healthy mindset, but I think that's also because that's been a part of uh, American culture in particular for so long, you know, rural optimism. Uh, I think that has laid a foundation for the culture uh, to a much greater degree. And because the United States developed uh, as a country, you know, achieved a developed status uh, relatively quickly without a centralized government, I think that attitude wa- was able to persevere where maybe it did not persevere as much in certain other areas. Obviously, in general, even in the United States, urban areas tend to be like a reservoir for uh, more state support, you know. Uh, but even so, that doesn't quite explain why there's relatively more here, even in urban areas. So I, I suspect there's some of that at play. You know, if not in urban areas, then certainly at least in rural America, there is that sort of sense that, you know, they don't need help. They already live relatively well and they don't really need more help. And so it doesn't really, it's not intuitive for them to ask for more given that. That's a little bit uh, discombobulated as an explanation, but that was just a thought I had, like a shower thought, I guess. You know, just to remind it, thinking of that conversation I had that might, uh, I think, elaborate a little bit on some of the source of that uh, conservative opposition above and beyond just, you know, ideology and history, etc. You know, there is a, it isn't just like a negative trait that people have, like it's portrayed sometimes on uh, in certain forums. You know, it is to a degree a positive attribute. Make of that what you will. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know why I threw that out there. We were talking about inequality, and it just kind of occurred to me. So we did get an elaboration on the Hong Kong question. So let me look at that. Oh, okay. All right, so they write here, original problem is that Hong Kong stock market is really disadvantageous disadvantageous rather. That's why it's filled by state-owned poorly growing companies relative to other Chinese companies. So to deal with the downsides of Hong Kong, the serious Chinese companies move to stock exchanges abroad. So when USA tries to block access to the best, uh, the New York Stock Exchange wouldn't have moved to other stock markets be more reasonable. I guess I hadn't heard about uh, the Hong Kong stock market being full full of state-owned enterprises. 
That's new information to me, but I'm not sure that it really matters that much. I mean, in terms of an IPO, what you're interested in is having your IPO in a financial market, you know, a stock market in this case, that is very, that has lots of liquidity because the more liquidity there is, the more uh, subscriptions you'll get to the IPO. You know, you want more people to buy the stock when you first offer it. And uh, Hong Kong may not have as much liquidity as New York, but it still has quite a bit. You know, it's still one of the more mature financial markets in, uh, in the world. So yes, it's true that, you know, I guess it's true that there's state-owned enterprises that are not very competitive on the market, but uh, who's on the market isn't really as relevant as the size of the market and how well-regulated the market is. And, uh, you know, notwithstanding the changes that have been made in Hong Kong politics over the past year, those have not really impacted uh, the Hong Song, you know, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So it is still, as far as I understand it, a well-run stock exchange that has lots of liquidity and has lots of business confidence on the part of financial markets. So that being the case, then, it is still an efficacious uh, venue through which to hold one's IPO. So in that sense, it doesn't necessarily hold big advantages over other stock exchanges. Let me see here. The Hong Kong series yeah, I don't know that they left Hong Song in the first place because it was disadvantageous. I think they just wanted uh, more exposure to Western financial markets, you know, more liquidity, you know, more demand, etc. There's lots of uh, venture capital in the West and lots of, you know, loose money. I mean, the quantitative easing has pumped immense amount of money into Western financial markets, so there's no shortage. And you can, you can also borrow very cheaply over here. Although I guess that's not much to do with stock markets. But, you know, the point is the advantage to being in Western markets is there's just more money sloshing around that you can get. And it's uh, the financial markets are a little more mature here and have more services, financial services that you can tap. And there's more legal protections, you know, et cetera. Uh, Hong Song then is not necessarily disadvantageous in the sense that there's something wrong with it. It's more just... It's disadvantaged in the sense that it's not as mature a market. You know, it's not necessarily a bad market. It's just, it doesn't have some of the advantages that certain other markets have. So I don't, I mean, given what I know about stock markets anyway, I don't know that it's necessarily a bad stock market that companies would not want to invest in. I'm not sure what disadvant, what specific disadvantages it would have as a stock market that would divert potential companies from it. My impression has always been that it's a good market, but I'm also not a financier. I don't have a degree in finance, so that's just based off of my own uh, self-taught information. You know, I tried to learn about finance on my own initiative some years ago, but uh, that hardly makes me an expert. So, you know, if somebody with more background would like to pitch in here, I, I and the uh, questioner here would probably appreciate it. You know, I would be curious myself if there's something I'm missing here, but that is my general impression anyway. You know, I don't think that there's any specific disadvantage in Hong Kong that would push people, push companies to the New York, New York Stock Exchange such that they would uh, want to go to some other stock exchange besides Hong Kong upon being pushed out of New York. Ah, but sir, I have received an official doctorate degree on reading a third of the Wikipedia article <laughs> on this topic. Well, I did a little better than Wikipedia. I tried out Investopedia, which I think is a little is a better source back in the day. Yeah, just following business to news too can help a bit. Just learning like technical terms and uh, how the market thinks. 
but yeah, I'm definitely not an expert. So take it, take, take that answer for what it's worth. You know, like I said before, I learn as much from chat, uh, as chat might learn from me during this segment. So, you know, if somebody wants to, uh, link to some sources or pitch in with their own knowledge, you know, I would certainly appreciate it. I could stand to learn more about finance and business myself. I might add here that I think that uh, if there are more state-owned enterprises from the mainland, it's a relatively recent move. I don't think there was a whole lot of mainland companies on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange until maybe the past 10 years or so. So that is a relatively new development. And I don't think the core functionality like uh, the rules and regulations and how the stock exchanges run itself. I don't know that it has changed all that much in that time span, but I could be wrong. Equivocations from John Smith today. <laughs> Let's see. Uh... Again, if that's not a satisfactory answer, feel free to elaborate. And if I'm missing some information, definitely, you know, feel free to point it out. I would certainly appreciate it. Uh, next question then. Since I am from Europe, I want to ask how Brexit will impact the economy in the European Union and will Britain become a tax haven in Europe and how will it affect the countries over the big pond? And how do you think the UK and the EU will be able to reach a deal? Yeah, we talked a little bit about this last week. I don't think that it's going to impact economic activity all that much in the short to medium run, because I think the way they're structuring the deal, uh, they're largely maintaining current economic activity. There's going to be more barriers. There's going to be, you know, customs checks and lots of regulations that are going to be a problem. But if you already have a lot of business in, you know, Europe, or if you already have a lot of business in the UK and whatever, you know, whichever side you're on, uh, you should still be able to carry that business out. There's probably going to be low tariffs and no quotas. So you shouldn't have any disadvantages beyond regulatory disadvantages, you know, the customs, the forms, you know, et cetera, that kind of thing. So you should be able to do the same business you do just with more hoops to jump through. So overall, the short to medium term impact shouldn't be that great. What's going to happen in the long run, though, is that firms are going to, uh, it's going to change the calculus as far as cost benefit analyses. Like when businesses are looking at whether they should invest uh, in the UK or the European Union, uh, the European Union is going to be relatively more attractive going forward. So there's going to be a long-term negative impact uh, for the UK, uh, just in terms of diverted trade and diverted investment. Now, there, could in be, there could even be some short-term change there because a lot of Japanese car makers invested in the UK because it had relatively low costs and uh, they wanted to use the UK then as a base for producing their cars and selling them in Europe. Uh, but the way the trade deal is shaking out, that may not be possible. It could still be possible, but uh, it kind of depends on just how difficult it is to kind of ship goods from the UK into the European Union going forward. If it's sufficiently disruptive, then car makers may pick up and move over to the continent just so that they can uh, have easier access to their main market there. So that could be a short-term disruption to UK manufacturing, but it's not entirely clear to me whether or not that's going to happen yet. So that's kind of a we'll-see category type thing. But overall, I wouldn't expect too, too much disruption. Uh, there's going to be some disruption in the very short term. 
like in the first month or so, just because there's going to be a lot of companies that don't know what they're supposed to do. So there's going to be a sharp learning curve there while everybody is figuring out like all the customs forms and checks and requirements that uh, they need to do. And so that, uh, that learning curve is going to be probably very disruptive. We're already seeing the early signs of that. There's like huge backlogs of goods and uh, huge, you know, what's the phrase I want, Nero, when there's a back something in traffic? A backup? Traffic jam? Yes, thank you. Sometimes the words fail me, Nero. I'm sorry. Yeah, some, there's a huge backup in trucks along the highways leading to the major ports. So uh, that could be a preview of what we're going to see for the once the UK leaves just for the next month or so, but that'll probably clear up. You know, I would expect that to clear up relatively quickly. And uh, from there, it'll probably be more or less business as usual. There will be some areas of the economy that do have some high tariffs. Uh, those will be disrupted, but I don't think there should be very many of those. I think that both sides are kind of angling uh, for pretty broad zero to low tariffs as far as which sectors are covered by low tariffs. So I don't think there should be too much disruption in that vein. Um, services isn't really going to be affected that much. They're going to do like a separate deal for that. So that's something else to look forward to as far as Brexit negotiations. Manufacturing will be affected in so much as, you know, it's more difficult to move intermediate goods uh, to and fro. Like I said before, that's kind of wait and see as far as to how much they'll be affected. And then agriculture is you know, probably not affected that much at all, really, beyond the uh, health checks, which apparently are going to be a thing. But yeah, short to medium term should be pretty much low impact, I would expect. With potential impact for manufacturing, but other than that, yeah, low to medium impact. I don't think Britain will become a tax haven because Britain has also been itself cracking down on tax haven, tax havens. And I suspect there will be an international agreement on that. Probably they'll negotiate that when they negotiate the services agreement, although that'll probably take a while. Yeah, it's true that Britain has an incentive to uh, be a tax haven, I guess. You know, they already have looser regulations. They tend to be more laissez-faire, you know, etc. But even so, uh, the UK also loses money from that. They lose tax revenue from tax havens uh, themselves because, you know, the UK would have to significantly change its laws to be competitive uh, with currently existing tax havens in places like uh, Mauritius or to a lesser degree, Switzerland. Switzerland's kind of cracked down on that themselves, though, so maybe they're not the best example. But, you know, Mauritius or even, <laughs> even the Cayman Islands, which is technically part of the UK, you know, the UK itself would have to change its laws pretty considerably if they wanted to have the mainland of the UK be a major tax haven. So I don't, I don't think it's really worth the effort for them. And the U, the European Union would probably punish them pretty severely if they'd tried it. So I just don't really think it would be worth it for them. Let's see, how will it affect the countries over the big pond? I'm assuming, uh, I mean, like the Atlantic Ocean. Um, I don't think it'll impact the US much at all. I think the U.S. kind of, I mean, for the U.S., I'm sure the government in general, well, maybe not the, maybe not the Trump administration, but in general, uh, the civil service, as it were, you know, the State Department would probably have preferred Britain stay in the European Union, if only for strategic reasons. Uh, but since that's not going to happen, uh, 
for the United States, it's basically just an opportunity. You know, we're going to get a free trade deal with the United Kingdom of some kind. So that's an opportunity for American business. Uh, but other than that, it doesn't, again, it just doesn't impact us all that much. We don't really have to care. We don't, it's not that big a deal for us, whether there's an Irish border or not, or what have you. It's just somebody else's problem, as it were. It only becomes a problem if the UK kind of drifts away from the European Union strategically. You know, if they want to drift away economically, that's not a big deal for us. But strategically, that would be an issue because that would kind of force us to choose problems. But that's almost certainly not going to happen. I mean, NATO is still viable as a strategic entity and everybody st still sees a lot of merit in it for the most part. So I don't think the United Kingdom wants to shift away from that strategic alliance or has signaled at all that it wants to. I mean, for all of the signaling I've seen over the course of, uh, for all of the signaling I've seen rather, over the course of Brexit negotiations, I haven't seen any that suggests that the United Kingdom wants to disrupt currently existing security arrangements. And they've gone out of their way along with the European Union uh, to try to negotiate new agreements to maintain most of those agreements. And the only disagreements have been over minor legal stuff for the most part, uh, stuff like extradition, for example. But beyond that, overarching strategic cooperation within the context of NATO and whatnot, uh, all of that is still core interest as far as the United Kingdom and the EU are concerned. So none of that seems to be upended. And so long as that's the case, the United States doesn't really have a dog in the fight, as it were. I would say overall, to summarize the US perspective, it's uh, an internal issue. <laughs> For the, for the Europeans. Let's see. And do I think the UK and the EU will be able to reach a deal? Yeah, they're going to reach a deal. Hypothetically, it's possible they won't. And I know the UK government has been signaling pretty strongly that, oh, you know, it's highly unlikely there's going to be a deal. We're only a couple hours away. But I mean, just looking at that rhetoric, that's the same rhetoric they've uh, used pretty, pretty consistently over the course of the past several years of negotiation. And every time they've talked like that, they ended up giving a concession. So I don't think that it's really, I think it's cheap talk, basically. It's being done for political consumption in domestic British politics. I don't think it's really a reflection of the negotiations themselves. And the European Union, for their part, have already come out and said that, they've, uh, that they're willing and able to sign an agreement as late as the end of December that technically it would still be legal to do that. So that says to me that there could well be brinksmanship that pushed the negotiations right up to the end of the month, as wild as that may be. But uh, for now then, my reading, and I could be wrong, you know, don't, don't invest any money on my advice. I'm not a financier. Or I don't have any inside knowledge or anything like that. But just based off of what I've been reading, my suspicion is that... Uh, both sides want an agreement and that uh, the quibbling right now is over details in the agreement and that they're just going to use uh, brinksmanship to try to get minor concessions here and there right up until the end of the month. And then there will probably be an agreement. I mean, the really hard part of the agreement from my perspective was always whether or not there would be a customs union. That was always the most difficult question because uh, if there's a customs union, then you don't have to set up customs checks for goods and services coming in. Uh, from either country into the other's market. And that's a pretty significant uh, advantage to have between trading countries. But 
when the British basically insisted on not having a customs union, then it became apparent that they were going to implement customs checks. And once that was out of the way, that opens up a whole range of possibilities. I mean, at that point, whether or not you want to raise tariffs or, you know, change regulations to block entry by one good or the other, all of that stuff was pretty academic. You know, it's easy to do that stuff when you already have a customs regime on your border. Uh, without a customs union, that stuff would have been difficult and it would have required agreement on that stuff. But as is, if you're going to have a customs regime, you don't really have to agree on perfect alignment and regulations and what have you. So that means that the negotiations right now were over relatively minor details. You know, There's been a lot of talk about state aid and the European Court of Justice and uh, you know ratchet clauses, non-regression clauses, but uh, all of that stuff is pretty easy to fix. You know, in the grand scheme of things, like if one side does something the other doesn't like, then the other side just uses retaliatory tariffs. And then that's the end of it. It's really that easy. Uh, Because the customs regime is already in place, it's easy to enforce those customs duties and block entry. So it's not hard. So that's my reading. I think there will be an agreement by the end of the month for those reasons. Let's see. What is your opinion? This is the next question. What is your opinion on the idea of universal basic income in developed countries where low wage jobs are being replaced by robotic labor? Well, we kind of touched on that already. Yeah, I kind of did. Uh, well, my opinion on it, I don't know that my opinion counts for much. <laughs> I'm not super well informed about uh, universal basic income. There's been some experiments, but nothing like really long term or consistent. I think Finland was the last country to try that. I think the U.S. tried it in the 70s at one point under the Nixon administration, weirdly. Uh, But I don't think either of those experiments produced results that you could necessarily extrapolate to the modern day. In general, I don't think they were positive findings. In general, I don't think they found too much that said that it would be a big boon for the economy. But I don't know that they found that it would be a significant drag either. Hypothetically, universal basic income is a viable solution to the the, uh, prospect and problem of automation in the economy. You know, you can just take the gains from automation and redistribute them so that people do have basic access to goods and services. You know, you don't even necessarily have to use weight, you know, income. Uh, That is, you don't have to use payments, transfer payments. Uh, You could also do something like uh, vouchers. Uh, You know, the United States kind of does that with uh, food stamps. You know, food stamps are not currency, but you can trade them for food and the companies know the company, food companies, you know, food markets, etc. Food market, grocery stores, I should say. Grocery stores will accept food stamps because they know they can redeem them with the government for actual you know, money. So a voucher system like that could also work as a kind of de facto universal basic income. And the voucher system has advantages politically because you could narrow what they spend it on to things that people actually think are needs rather than wants. So in the United States, I can't speak for Europe really, but in the United States, one of the criticisms of welfare programs is that uh, they encourage welfare queens, people who just live off welfare and use their money to buy stupid things that they don't even really need. Um, The welfare queen is actually kind of a mythological creature. They don't, you know, that doesn't really exist per se. It was more of a political talking point in the 70s, but certainly there are people who abuse the system. You know, that's not a stretch. That happens in pretty much any welfare system. So in the United States, there's an aversion to welfare partly for that reason. And so the voucher system that I kind of highlight here 
has the advantage of restricting what people can use the money to buy so that they're not using it to buy drugs or, you know, whatever thing that uh, people who don't like welfare don't want people spending the welfare money on. And that's just one example. I mean, you could implement it any number of ways. You know, I'm sure. I'm sure there's probably whole literature I need to review on it that kind of lists them all. But yeah, I don't think it's an impossible solution. It's just very expensive because you would have to spend a lot of money on it. I know that some people argue it wouldn't be all that expensive because you could just uh, use it to replace pre-existing welfare programs. But even if you even if you removed all the existing welfare programs. A UBI would still represent a pretty significant increase uh, in financial commitment on the part of uh, the government. You know, they would have to spend a lot more money to cover everybody and to give them that basic level of income. So getting past that, I think, would be a significant political challenge for one, certainly in the United States, but also just financial challenge inherently. You know, how do you pay for that and make it viable over the long term? You know, we can kind of see some of that here with the... Uh, what do you call it? The bailout, not the bailout. We were talking about it earlier, the COVID relief bill. You know, we've had two of them and together they're going to cost, uh, you know, a couple trillion dollars. And that's not even to get people like a monthly payment. That's just for like a month or two. I think that's all the questions we have. Yeah. we doing okay on time let's see 215 yep. i've been live for seven hours 35 so going for about 25 minutes sounds good to me okay 25 puts us at it's about 245 okay so about half an hour What did we have here? I think we talked briefly. I think I mentioned we could talk about Israeli politics last time. Because that's something we haven't been up on lately. Let's see. So we can take a look at that. Just kind of a brief update on it. So when last we checked in on Israeli politics, uh, the drama was, unsurprisingly, COVID. Uh, but before COVID, there had been a series of elections over the course of just a year in Israel, and all of them had resulted in basically what you would call a hung parliament in Britain. You know, nobody really had a clear advantage, and they didn't have enough seats or allies to form a majority government. And the result is that they kept having to just hold new elections. So COVID pretty much put a stop to that since the public was concerned about, you know, the health crisis and uh, wanted the two leading coalitions. I think blue and white was one. And then uh, Likud was the other one. That was the one led by Netanyahu. So blue and white and Likud entered into a unity government to deal with the health crisis posed by COVID. And so that sort of stopped the uh, intermittent elections from happening. But it was always an, an uneasy alliance. You know, one of the conditions in the alliance is that uh, Netanyahu would be prime minister for the first two years. And then uh, Benny Gantz, the head of the Blue and White Coalition, would become the prime minister in the second two years. But it was never clear if Netanyahu actually intended to commit to that because uh, one of the driving forces for Netanyahu right now, the sitting prime minister, is avoiding going to jail 
because he's being investigated on, uh, I think, two separate charges of corruption. Yeah, one of them had to do with, uh, was it a movie mogul or something? Some foreign businessman who uh, wanted a favor. And so he changed the, granted him like a visa or something, or granted him citizenship in exchange for something. I don't quite remember the details. And then there was the uh, alleged bribery for favorable news coverage in a newspaper, something to that effect. So he's being investigated for those, and he can't go to jail if he's still sitting prime minister. He has immunity. And I think there's also some limitations to how far the investigations can proceed while he's sitting prime minister. So his driving ambition right now is to stay in office to maintain that immunity. That being the case, I might be simplifying this a bit. I apologize if I'm not getting the details exactly right. But basically, this is the gist of it. Netanyahu has been playing a cat and mouse game with the opposition so that he can just stay in power, so that he can try and dodge these corruption scandals and investigations. Blue and White, meanwhile, has been trying to uh, defeat him. He's been in office a very long time now. And Blue and White is not even really all that liberal, so to speak. I, well, maybe I shouldn't use liberal, per se. Americans might get the wrong idea there. It's uh, progressive. Progressive, yeah, that would be. It's not really all that progressive. It's actually relatively conservative. It's kind of a coalition, not so much of progressives that want to shift away from conservative governance. It's more a coalition of people who just don't like Netanyahu. You know, Netanyahu has kind of gained a reputation for, amongst some quarters in Israel, a reputation for uh, corruption, self-interest, and uh, bombastic politics. So because he's done that, because he is more of a personal, because he's personalized politics in Israel to a degree, uh, some people don't like that. And so that's led to this sort of weird coalition, the blue and white coalition of disparate forces that are more of an anti-Netanyahu coalition than a coherent set of ideologies. So the COVID unity government has resulted in a kind of ceasefire between the two coalitions. And uh, it was not a ceasefire that was very productive for blue and white because they actually lost some support because they were willing to engage in that unity government. You know, some people really wanted them to take Netanyahu to the match and force another election. But uh, Gantz was afraid that he would lose more support than he lost uh, by going with the coalition. So he ended up in the unity government. So since then, over the past couple months, there's been more drama about the budget. Uh, Israel... And this is relevant to the unity government here. Uh, Israel has been operating on the 2019 budget, which was approved in 2018. And uh, because it hasn't had a decisive election since then, they haven't been able to pass a new budget. Now, here's the thing. If the government declines to pass new budget legislation by 23rd of November, sorry, 23rd of December, uh, then there's a special provision uh, that comes into effect which is that they have to hold a new election, I think. I'm trying to find it in my notes here. I think that's what it was. So the idea here is that Netanyahu will get out of his coalition agreement to cede power after the first two years by basically not passing a budget. He's already come out and said that the earliest a new budget can be passed is February. So if that's true, then they're going to pass through this uh, budget deadline and that's going to activate a new election. So that would get around the necessity of handing over power after two years and uh, would also potentially result in him uh, getting a majority in parliament. 
uh, such that he would be safely ensconed in power for another couple of years at least. Uh, it might be an advantageous move for Netanyahu because Blue and White has lost some support over the unity government discord. You know, again, there's a lot of different factions within the Blue and White coalition, and they don't really get along that much. And it's been very hard maintaining the coalition uh, over the past year and a half uh, through all of the uh, political tensions and COVID and whatnot. So Netanyahu may be sensing weakness here and be, may be trying to force the issue by forcing an election. Remains to be seen whether or not he actually does that. But if it does come to pass, there's going to be a what I believe will be the fourth election inside of roughly a year and a half, which is a record for Israel. I think they'd already broken the record with the third one inside of a year. So going for number four here is going to set the new record. So some high political drama in Israel as a result. He's a slippery guy. He's hard to beat. He has a lot of support from uh, Russians, apparently. I was actually reading a really good article that I posted on Twitter that talked about uh, the big immigration wave of Russian Jews, or, well, Eastern European Jews, that came to Israel after the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union. And apparently that was a pretty substantive uh, migration. And it had a pretty substantive effect on the culture. And one of the things that happened is that uh, they kind of formed their own in-group that had their own political preferences. Uh, you know, one of the things in the article they mentioned is that there was an expectation in Israel that these Eastern European Jews that were coming would be very socialist, you know, perhaps understandably, given that they were coming from the Eastern Bloc. So they kind of expected them to be these sort of, uh, uh, what's the phrase I want? Sort of Tolstoy-like, you know, romantic socialist type figures coming over. And uh, they were disappointed, you know, as it was. They ended up being sort of these very cynical people, you know, not necessarily that they weren't socialist or leftist, but they were a bit more realistic. You know, they were sort of cynical realists to a degree that surprised uh, a lot of Israelis. And uh, one of the one the way that they tend to vote, this group, is that they tend to vote for people who are harder on national security issues, uh, the national security hawks, so to speak. And uh, that's as a result, Netanyahu has garnered a lot of support from them. I hope I'm remembering that right. Or was it the settlers? I remember one of the things I read is that there was a lot of tension between them and the settlers because the uh, settlers were the more hardcore. What's the word I want? Well, basically, a lot of the Russians who came over had somewhat tenuous genealogical links to Judaism. It wasn't really something they practiced, but they had historical roots. And uh, according to Israeli law, I think it's uh, if you have geneolo genealogical linkage that you can prove, then you can technically qualify as being Jewish and uh, have the uh, right to travel to Israel and become a citizen. But there was a lot of tension with uh, some of the more conservative Jews in Israel because they didn't like the fact that uh, they weren't Jewish enough, as it were. They kind of doubted their Jewish credentials. And that's been a kind of running sore between the two communities over time. Maybe that's it. Maybe that Netanyahu, I know that Netanyahu gets a lot of support from the settler community, but I had thought that he also got a lot of support from the Russian immigrant community. I'm going to have to double check that because now I'm getting a doubting myself. But anyway, very interesting article. I think it was printed in uh, something called Maze or Mojia or something. 
let's see. Did we have? No. Okay. So that's Israeli politics. Just a quick snapshot and not a professional one. Just kind of giving an idea of what's happening over there. And then I also mentioned Biden's green policy ideas. I think we might have talked about this already, though. Can't quite remember. Sure. I've heard very mixed uh, sentiments from environmentalists about Biden. Some of them are like, at last, someone who's going to work in our favor. And then other ones are like, actually, he's really bad, but he's not as bad as Trump. <laughs> yeah, I doubt he'll do too much. You know, I think. Uh... One of the big schisms in American politics right now is rural areas dependent on uh, industries like coal or, you know, fracking, what have you. And uh, I think trying to not aggravate that part of the population, since it's that part of the population that, you know, voted for Trump and uh, is voting more for, uh, has kind of changed the political landscape of the United States. Because traditionally, they'd kind of been more democratic voting because they'd been like miners and, you know, resource extraction workers, you know, kind of blue collar workers who tended to vote, work in unions and vote for Democrats. But uh, they've since, you know, because the Democrats have shifted more towards urban professionals and have embraced more environmental environmentalism in their policy platform. A lot of these workers tend to vote more conservative now. And uh, in particular, they liked Trump because he seemed to uh, focus a lot more on, you know, free trade for one, but also he seemed very anti uh regulation as far as environmental regulations. So trying to appease that anger there in that community, I suspect will be something the Biden administration wants to do since uh, I suspect what he's going to try to do is to run something resembling a unity government. So he's probably not going to please anybody with the way he governs, uh, but that's by design. He's probably going to try to just ease tensions by governing in a centrist, you know, run it, governing in a centrist way. Uh, that, Basically, a unity government, you mean piss off as few people as possible? Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, because I was thinking about Biden as a candidate, too, and I don't really know what he's about. Like, what is his meme? A lot of candidates have something that's a really key thing, like uh, Bernie Sanders is about student debt and the cost of higher education and stuff, and he's got a bunch of clear talking points. Uh, and then some people... I don't know. They, they do the politics stuff well, but it's not super clear to your average person what they're about. Yeah. I mean, Joe Biden, I think, is mostly just a center-left candidate. He's more of a status quo candidate that doesn't really want to revolutionize the system or anything, but does want to make changes where uh, changes are efficacious, You know, where there's political support mm -hmm. and where it can do good. Uh, he's not opposed to change. And, you know, I think incremental change is probably the best way to characterize him. But I don't think there's any like one issue like, uh, you know, like you pointed out for Sanders, it was healthcare, or, you know, something like that. He doesn't have an equivalent, really. I've never seen Joe Biden like be uh, a major advocate for significant substantive policy changes in that vein. So I think he's just kind of a steady hand, as it were. That's very much how he's been painting himself since he's been running for president. You know, there's not like any one thing he hits on. It's more of an image than a policy platform.
And I think that just reflects the state of the politics in the United States, you know, with Trump being Trump, uh, I think it made sense for Biden to kind of run as that, as the opposite of that, you know, as basically the non-Trump. And, uh, you know, there was definitely a demand for that, as we saw. But the downside of that is that there's not like a clear mandate for radical political reform of issues that are pressing of one sort or another. Obviously, people differ in how they define that. But I don't think uh, Biden just has the political capital to do much of anything. You know, his margin of victory was not so great as to allow him to completely disregard uh, conservative political opinion. But it also, mm -hmm. he also depended on like far left opinion. Uh, so he also can't ignore that completely. So the result is that he's in this awkward position. And he's already said that he might, I mean, he hasn't said for sure that he's not going to run for a second term, but I kind of suspect that's going to be the case. So if that is true, then uh, he's probably going to focus mostly on just improving governance and restoring something resembling stability to American politics. That's conjecture on my part, but I have a pretty strong suspicion that's more what he's going to try to do. And uh, because I think that I'm doubtful that he'll do anything dramatic. And also, for that same reason, I'm doubtful he'll do anything in terms of environmental regulations, because I suspect pissing off uh, rural blue-collar workers is going to be the last thing he wants to do. So that means environmentalism is probably not going to be a major priority outside of certain niche areas. You know, stuff like clean water, for example, probably isn't going to aggravate very many people unless you have a ranch out west or something. Can't believe they're making us drink clean water. Well, it's not so much about clean water. It's more about water management. You know, uh, the government traditionally, because the federal government owns so much of the land out west, they have control over a lot of rules regarding how people use water and whatnot. And some of the locals don't like the restrictions because they think they're too, well, rigid, you know, they Sometimes they're interpreted rigidly. Sometimes they're not flexible enough for local conditions. And people don't like the fact that they can't really just change the rules to fit their own needs. You know, you can't really just change federal rules for local issues, you know, just by definition. So that, uh, that innate tension there between locals and federal rules rubs a lot of them out west the wrong way. So that's more what I refer to there. But there's not a whole lot of people who live out west in general. Uh, so it's kind of more of a niche issue for Westerners. And I don't think it's one that a lot of urban industrial type workers or, well, not urban, but rural blue collar workers. I don't think it's something that they in particular would feel particularly moved by. I think they're more interested in things like uh, wages and job security. So messing with fracking, probably not. Messing with water rights, probably, yeah, if only for the symbolic victory. But anyway, that's... Uh, a brief, a brief review of uh, what the Biden administration might look like. But uh, I was, uh, what I did is that I read an article about, uh, with some ideas about what the Biden administration could do in foreign policy in order to advocate for uh, a more environmentally friendly uh, policy. And uh, this stuff is not really domestic stuff, but it also doesn't really require the participation of Congress. Uh, that's important because <clears throat> because most likely the Republicans will maintain control of the Senate. And because they do that, they're going to be able to block significant uh, reform efforts. So that being the case, uh, anything that the president can do on his own is going to be uh, the most likely vector for any kind of significant policy change at this point.
which is an unfortunate reality of the status quo. You know, the executive branch has been growing in power quite a bit in the United States over the past couple of decades, and that's not really a good thing, but it is what it is. So some things the Biden administration could do using executive authority without the need of congressional approval. Uh, this is a list from that article, and it just has some things that you could look forward to. And maybe chat could debate them. I noticed that chat seems to be particularly environmentally conscious. They tend to go off on these debates about uh, new technology and environmental policy. And it's been pretty interesting for me since that's not something I have a strong background in. So I thought this might be a particular in might be of particular interest to uh, those people. So let's see, I guess we can just kind of jump in here real quick here. And it's not a long list. It's, you know, it's not uh, super sophisticated, but just to kind of run through it here. Uh, one thing that they could do is sign some new trade deals, uh, which allow more scope for industrial policies that support green firms. Uh, you know, obviously, industrial policy is, refers to when states try to support or prop up certain industries or firms in order to uh, engender the emergence of a certain industry in the country. So countries trying to industrialize might give subsidies or tax breaks to certain firms so that they can industrialize faster. That's a rough snapshot of what an industrial policy looks like. So in terms of uh, green technology and green firms, there's been industrial policies all over the world. And you know this includes the United States where governments have tried to support research and development of uh, environmentally friendly technologies uh, so that, uh, you know, the environment can be cleaner, so that the economy can be less dirty, uh, to improve standard of living, you know, et cetera, to deal with climate change. So for all of these reasons, and probably more than a few that I don't know and don't remember, uh, states have been engaging in green industrial policies. So free trade deals generally don't like industrial policies because they want, uh, they don't like the idea of firms competing uh, with firms that have subsidies. Because if you get a subsidy, obviously that gives you a competitive advantage over firms that don't get a subsidy. So a lot of free trade deals have restrictions, uh, put restrictions on the ability of states to support certain industries. You can still do it, uh, but you have to do it carefully. Like you have to do it at the research and development stage. That's generally how the United States does it. And there are public-private partnerships, local state, federal level that focus on developing new technology, but don't, necess but don't necessarily provide supports uh, for the actual firms that emerge from the R&D. Uh, but in Europe, they actually have more state support for firms. And obviously in a place like China or other, other countries in, in that vein, they have a great deal of state support for firms. So it, it kind of differs from country to country. But uh, free trade deals, as a general rule, uh, have provisions against uh, industrial policy. So what's proposed here is that new free trade deals uh, give more discretion to states to support firms, so long as that support is to firms that are working on technology that relates to uh, green technology, environmentally friendly technology, you know, something to that effect. So that was one idea. Uh, another idea had to do with the World Trade Organization. So the World Trade Organization is the premier free trade agreement that covers pretty much all of the world's trade at this point. Uh, almost the entire world is a member of the WTO, and the WTO doesn't really have tight requirements as far as what it mandates members do. It basically just requires uh, relatively low tariffs, uh, non-discrimination. That is to say, you can't have high tariffs for one country and low tariffs for another. Uh, you're supposed to have you're supposed to treat every country equally in terms of tariffs. Although with the exemption of uh, regional trade groups, you can form 
trade deals like say NAFTA in North America or the European Union where you treat where you give favorable treat, treatment to certain countries but uh, outside of that context you're not supposed to just arbitrarily punish or favor one state or the other uh, so that's just a and there's in general restrictions on state support that aren't really enforced and haven't been which is a source of contention right now but technically that is a requirement there so some of the changes to the WTO that are being advocated in terms of uh, a greening of uh, foreign policy in the United States. One is lower tariffs for low carbon content goods and services. So right now, low tariffs are in general encouraged, but uh, there could be a provision added that states should have even lower tariffs. Uh, in other words, favorable tariffs for anything that is a low carbon good, content good, low carbon content good or service. Uh, this would also apply to clean energy products of one sort or another. So basically just giving favorable treatment in terms of trade to goods and services that are pushing the economy in a greener direction here. Uh, they, would all, they, they would also advocate uh, for a peace clause for climate measures. So a peace clause uh, roughly refers to uh, kind of an exemption to normal restrictions. So an example there is a peace clause in the WTO for agricultural subsidies. And the idea there is that where normally state support and subsidies for uh, firms and industries would be forbidden, uh, an exemption is given to the agricultural sector. Uh, in the case of agriculture, it has to do with food security. You know, nobody wants to uh, worry about whether or not, you know, they're going to have enough food. So uh, an exemption was given so that subsidies could be given to maintain uh, agriculture, both so that there would be enough food and also to provide security for farmers, since, you know, farming can be very unpredictable in terms of things like rain and the weather and whatnot. So what's advocated here is a similar such clause for uh, green-related public procurement stuff, you know, so if you're a government that wants to uh, give subsidies to a firm that is developing green technology or that is producing green goods and services, uh, you would have an exemption from normal WTO pro prohibitions uh, so that you could do that without worrying about getting sued. Let's see. So another foreign policy strategy here uh, regards China. So this has to do with basically just pushing China to cooperate on climate issues. Uh, China made some promises during the Obama administration to curtail uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and they've kind of waffled on that. And they're not really on track to meet those commitments. So there's some desire there to use diplomatic capital to try to pressure China to do that. Uh, also, because China has so much state support for its own green industry, uh, there's some idea that the United States can kind of retaliate uh, by implementing its own state support for uh, green industries. I don't know if that's going to pass muster politically, but hypothetically, you could uh, paint that as being trade retaliation instead of green industrial policy. And maybe it would be more palatable there in those terms than it would be otherwise. Are you talking about an environmental arms race? <laughs> People trying to make the biggest and most powerful solar panels? Technically, yes. And technically, that's already been happening. <clears throat> you know, the United States famously uh, gave subsidies to a solar panel firm. Solyndra? Is that what it was called? I'm sure somebody in chat knows. It was kind of a big deal back when it happened because the firm ended up going bankrupt and there was a lot of criticism of the government wasting money on it. But uh, the Chinese government also gave subsidies to solar panel firms. And so there was a, a lot of competition in the solar panel market amongst firms that 
all were getting state subsidies because it was expected that solar panels would be an important source of uh, energy in the future. And so everybody wanted to get in early. In general, you know, not to not to go on too much of a tangent here, but in general, one of the strategies for industrial policy has been, uh, kind of like what I referred to before, has been to de- try to subsidize the development of new technologies in the hope that uh, your country will develop firms that dominate those technologies. Uh, if your firms dominate those technologies, you kind of get a first mover advantage, advantage, and it generally is harder for firms in other countries to move in. So you can become a dominant producer of that new good or service, that new technology, and you can set the standards in a way that is favorable for the emergence of a broader you know, coalition of related industries. And so you get a big advantage in that sense. So a lot of industries, a lot, well, a lot of uh, countries rather, have been approaching industrial policy from that perspective, you know, just trying to encourage the development of new tech in the hopes of being sort of the uh, locus for the emergence, the explosion of a new industrial complex producing not only that new technology, but goods and services related to that technology. So the United States and China both invested in solar panels using that logic. You know, there was a hope that they could become the new center for production of what they hoped would become a major new industrial product in the future. And it's been mixed results so far, but in effect, that was, as you say, a kind of environmental arms race, since it, since it is expected that green technologies will become very important. And uh, that yeah, is, in, in a way, and also an investment in loss, because a lot of these technologies aren't refined to the same extent. They haven't had as much money behind them for as long. Mm-hmm. So the short-term win would be pushing money more into oil, because that's already been demonstrated to work automobiles and ships and stuff already use that kind of stuff as opposed to risking it for the future. There are different reasons for or against why you would prioritize renewables versus the existing fossil fuels. Oh, yeah. yeah, there's there's good reasons. There's good market reasons to invest in it. Uh, and that has been happening. You know, I don't, you probably remember Neuro way back when we were in uh, college. Uh, when Actually, this was even before that, before we even met. When I was an undergrad in college, way back in the early aughts, like 2004, thereabouts, uh, oil prices were very high, exceptionally so, and gas prices correspondingly high. Now, the upshot of that is that it was so high that investing in environmental technologies that uh, used fuel more efficiently or that uh, got around fuel entirely, or basically alternative sources of energy, those became very good investments, economically speaking, just financially, regardless of state subsidy. It just made a lot of sense because oil prices were so high. So oil prices are not really that high now, but there are similar market forces at work that make them attractive investments. And uh, there's been a huge amount of development by, of green technology by market actors for that reason. But, but the development of new technologies is not always easy and markets aren't always the best at you know, investing in them especially if there's a relatively low probability of reward for it. So public-private partnerships have been important in that sense. And by, well, and by that, I mean industrial policies. You know, the uh, tech-based industrial policies are important in the sense that they have been driving some technological innovation. Not all of it, but uh, their fair share, certainly. Let's see. I'm not sure how I got onto that. What was that? We were talking about Biden's Green New Deal, and then we talked about investing in renewables. Oh, right, right, right. Investing. So, yeah, you're right. They're about the investing, yeah, that, that is a good, that is a valid point. 
But let's see. But yeah, that's the general logic here. You know, if China is going to have state support for green industries, why doesn't the United States do it in retaliation? Uh, but that's going to get mired in American politics for sure, since there's going to be a lot of opposition to uh, state subsidies for firms, kind of like what there was with um, Solyndra back in the day. I hope I'm getting the name right. But let's see. So that that's one idea for your for a green foreign policy under the Biden administration. Another the diet. Another idea proposed by the article here uh, regarded international finance. And uh, this kind of tied more into uh, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, uh, both of which are heavily influenced by the United States. Uh, I think the IMF in particular, I think the World Bank is the one led by Europeans and the IMF is generally led by an American. That's not a hard and fast rule, but it is kind of just sort of the norm. It was uh, the norm set very early on when the institutions were first created. So one of the things proposed in the article for the IMF is to restrict lending to clean projects. You know, the IMF lends money to states in order to stabilize their finances and whatnot. But uh, you know, I think they've also been known to give loans for other things, you know, for in order to try to spark economic growth to pull out of a recession. So one thing that they might do is uh, condition their loans on the loans going towards projects that have to be clean doesn't necessarily have to be anything in particular. It just, in general, the project can't be dirty, basically. Uh, they also propose prioritizing lending practices that promote low-carbon energy technologies and infrastructure. So the idea there is pretty intuitive, I think. Uh, you could invest in infrastructure that's pretty dirty. You know, There are different ways you can do that. And what they propose is just to try to push uh, countries that receive lending from the IMF uh, to focus their infrastructure projects on uh, on uh, low carbon energy technologies here. I'm not super familiar with the terminology, but uh, basically they just want people to improve, invest in infrastructure and technology in a way that does not increase uh, emissions. So let's see, uh, also in the vein of international finance, there's also the US International Development Finance Corporation. And the idea here is to offer green alternatives to uh, some of the dirtier Chinese development money. Uh, this corporation here, the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, uh, the idea is just to give money, development money, to developing economies. And uh, I think I might be confusing it with a different institution, but I think this was the institution created in response to China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is unfortunate because if I'm right, then that means this is severely underfunded. I think they only cut uh, some amount of money to uh, dish out measured in the millions of dollars, whereas the Chinese are dishing out something like billions and billions of dollars as part of the Belt and Road Program. So as far as international competition with China, uh, the U.S. is not even in the same league in terms of development money. But even so, uh, one, of, one of the things they propose here is just to have the, the development money that the corporation provides. Uh, they wanted to condition it on green projects. You know, they wanted to, basically similar to what they're proposing for the IMF, they can try to encourage developing countries to invest in green alternatives, you know, greener infrastructure projects and investments than what the Chinese development money is going towards. I don't know if that's going to be attractive because I don't know how many green alternatives there really are uh, to the Chinese development projects, uh, but there could be something there. You know, it's uh, worth a shot anyway, hypothetically. Uh, they also want the International Development Finance Corporation to collaborate with other nations' development agencies as well as private sector actors to fund green energy investments. Yeah, that's pretty intuitive. 
So let's see. So all of that would green for the policy, so to speak. Uh, two more items here. As far as the Treasury Department in the United States, one thing that they could do is uh, debt forgiveness. And uh, they've kind of done something like this before. There was actually a, what were called debt for nature swaps in the 1980s. I actually hadn't heard of this. Uh, back in the 1980s, there was a whole bunch of developing countries that um, defaulted on their debt. You know, that was a big problem back then. And uh, one of the ways they apparently solved it uh, was that they offered debt forgiveness in exchange for commitments by developing countries to uh, mitigate deforestation, uh, among other various environmental measures. So that apparently was a fairly successful measure. And what's proposed now is that there be debt for climate swaps. The idea be being that debt can be forgiven in exchange for commitments to take uh, policy actions that are favorable to the environment and to the climate. I'm not sure how much debt the United States gives directly to developing countries, though, so I'm not sure how much there is to work with there. But hypothetically, that would be leverage that could be used to green foreign policy there. So that is an idea anyway. Uh, the last item on my list here has to do with nuclear power, and that was just uh, the article proposing boosting the U.S. nuclear industry as an alternative to uh, dirtier sources of electricity. So these are not things that the Biden administration, the prospective, you know, the incoming Biden administration uh, has committed to doing. But hypothetically, these are things that they could do and uh, that if they tried to do would be relatively likely to succeed at since they would not require congressional approval. So uh, some hope there for some of you with, with more interest in uh, green politics, as it were, uh, environmentalism. And, uh, you know, I'm sure some of you of that mind have probably commented on chat. I look forward to reading it. I'm interested to seeing what feedback there is on some of that. Let's see. So, we, oh, I, I'm sorry, I overshot. That's okay. My apologies. So kind of a rambling episode today. A little bit all That's over the place. That's a good episode. I got to pick some countries and learn about them. Countries that maybe people have never heard of before. Eritrea, which caught us on a really fun journey talking about other nations that have had militaries that have a strong hand in politics. Egypt, Turkey, Thailand were the other ones mm -hmm. that you mentioned. Yeah. Got some good questions too. Fuzzy Cord stepping up to pick up those. Thank you very much, Fuzzy Cord. And people in the chat helping out with things like the name of that hack or whatever, solar winds and what have you. So yeah, another rock solid episode of World Discussion for this December the 20th. Next week, we'll put as a tentative, it's the Christmas weekend kind of thing. Yeah, no. But thank you once again, Agent Smith, for coming on and sharing your thoughts with us. Oh, my pleasure. Some more coherent than others, <laughs> but that's the case for everybody. Yeah. You get asked harder questions than a lot of other people do, so we're not expecting you to be perfect. Well, thank you. I appreciate the mercy. <laughs> well, cool. This is available <coughs> Excuse me. on all kinds of podcast platforms. Agent Smith is going to have his Patreon page up and running in the near or distant future. <laughs> Once he does, we'll be sure to give that a shout out uh, in these podcasts themselves and also link it in the chat. 
And we will see you all on the next episode of World Discussion with Agent Smith. Smith. Smith.